Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Right. Here we are. This is going to be an exciting one. My guest is Dr. Sam Cannon, professor of literature, and here he is. One second. There we go. Hello. Oh, I'm not plugged in. That's right. Pardon me, sir. I blame you for my focus because this, you might not know, but you have the distinguished honor of being the first professor I've ever gotten stoned with. (laughs) Oh, dang. (laughs) Yes. You, you of course asked me and if, uh, if we were going to do that beforehand and I thought, well, now we are let's uh, so, so uh, I'm feeling good. How are you feeling? I'm feeling all right. Yeah. I'm a, I'm happy to be having this conversation to to get to talk with you. Me too. I've been very excited for this one. Yeah. So, uh, damn, I I had a question right off the bat, just a random question, just to set the tone of what this is going to be. Awesome. Okay. Just to get to know you, because we've never spoken in person. This is a, this is a strange way of doing it, but I like it. And, you know, hopefully the listeners do too, just the, out of the blue okay here's the question i've really really been thinking about this why do you think jesus spent so much of his time at like strip clubs and brothels Hmm. because that's basically what he did he did that a lot well i think if you realize your your divinity uh which i guess we're under the assumption that jesus knows his mission and knows right what he's up to the time that you have here in the world, among the people, among humans being completely human, uh, what better place to go? And so if I can now extend that and get a little punchy with you right off the bat, because, you know, hey, I'm punching up. You're an you're a, a awesome doctor. And I then thought, I don't recall ever seeing that many missionary elders in strip clubs. You like, see, you like this now? right into some some interesting questions we're going to explore on this episode do you want to start off and let people know a bit about who you are in your own words sure yeah it's strange um who i am but that's all of us okay um i am academically i'm uh a professor of latin american literature uh and spanish language so i teach language courses and literature and culture courses. Um, And so that's what I do. That's like my day job. Uh, My area of research is on Latin American comic books and graphic novels and how they deal with political uh, violence and economic violence. So, but that's not what I think we're not here for that kind of. Well, I think that's super interesting. So my dad, I was, my dad was a comic book collector, like big time oh heck uh, yeah. you know like you know x-men number one every issue of conan like you know multi-million dollar collection which he then had hardbound by this old scottish bookbinder in the 70s 
so they lost all their value. <laughs> uh, which is classic him. A creative guy cares about beauty in a lot of ways as a carpenter, but but not wise when it came to collecting things. That was a lesson I learned. A mistake of his, I did not repeat. Oh man. Yeah. So I got. I did well with. I did well on Magic the Gathering. Shall we say? <laughs> Financed a pretty awesome teen years. So I I, I do uh, love comics and and that sort of stuff and. Uh, I'm fascinated that uh, you did you do your dissertation then on uh, Latin American comics and and you're especially I'm very interested because I have a dear friend who just had to like basically flee Chile, uh, Chile. Um, you know a lot about Chile and so this is a, a an adept of the Golden Dawn who was part of a Toronto temple back in the day and and so she you know we 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 she translated some of my uh, Frater R C books into Spanish. Really lovely lady, uh, Sorbi, and so she's basically had to flee Chile more or less right now and uh what's going on like and 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 what what do you tell us about chile because i don't think many people know that much about it other than the, the fabulous yeah. wine it's a uh, it's a really strange and interesting situation down there that I've, I've been really happy to follow and see how comic artists are dealing with it um and that's what i'm looking at as a kind of art that's being produced but um Back in like 2018, 2019, a lot of protests going on, um, especially around education, um, income inequality, uh, sexism, you know, in the government and in the culture broadly. And uh, so in 2019, just huge protests went off right before COVID hit. So like October 2019. And um, it's basically the constitution that the country is running under now was written during the military dictatorship in the 70s and 80s and it's still the constitution uh, even though the country has returned to democracy but that's a very skewed form of democracy that was based on a dictatorial constitution so the big push right now that's going on is um creating a constitutional convention and rewriting the constitution uh and this was done through all the protests brought about a plebiscite vote and so they did the vote and you got like 80% of the population saying, let's do a new constitution. Uh, so just interesting stuff going on to see these kind of historical moments that we look back and we're like, oh, constitutional convention, this is awesome, uh, you know, in, in other countries' histories, but it's happening now, you know, in other places around the world. Yeah, yeah. So I, I even, okay, I actually did, no one really knows this, but I did write a comic once me and my buddy wrote a comic, hired a graphic artist, did five issues, took it to Comic-Con, even massive numbers in promotion, did a cross promotion with Penny Arcade and Suicide Girls, had a great time down at Comic-Con. And, and it was a, and it even, and it was a comic making fun of pickup artists. <laughs> yeah, during that whole thing uh, yeah. with the, the yeah. Canadian mystery VH1 creep creeper dude <laughs> and uh neil strauss the rolling the fabulous rolling stone writer neil strauss and it actually got his attention he got me into rock journalism so comics uh, had a big influence on my life even the one time i i i you know spent a few weekends with a friend getting stoned seeing how we could make fun of the absurdity of that of that community uh, it sounds like magic though right it's like you do it and then it works and then you're yeah yeah cool so um what's what's uh we could talk about what's your 
life and like as a professor in COVID, that's that's sort of interesting to me, actually. But I'm also curious about the kinds of classes you teach. Um, yeah. If so uh, it's one of those, pick pick whichever you, you prefer. So uh, I was teaching Don Quixote, which was a lot of fun when COVID happened. So the semester when awesome. COVID comes down, we're reading just the whole semester dedicated to Don Quixote, um, reading the whole book and then looking at it through the lens of the hero's journey, like, you know, Joseph Campbell. And uh, it was really great class. Like there were times, uh, you know, I get pretty uh, almost emotional. Like that's almost a spiritual book for me, uh, Don Quixote. And so um, in the, switching that class to online, a lot of the like rapport that we had, you know, kind of fell off. But I think we had built such a good rapport in the group before that, that it survived the last little bit of the semester um, and wrap that up really well. Um, but the next semester was not, you know, didn't work. Over the summer, you just don't have the same rapport, at least for me. I'm always trying to kind of engage with the students and uh, that's hard over Zoom with a, a, you know, a group of people. Do you have any, any uh, outstanding thoughts or considerations of lessons pertinent from the Don Quixote story to us these days? Oh, well, you know, there's this idea of disillusionment, which is one of the big ideas in Don Quixote. And the, the debate, right, with him is, well, who's the madman? Is it the madman or is it the world, you know, that can't find a place for people anymore? Um, and so, I think that idea of becoming disillusioned, not necessarily like you get sad, like not, not in the English meaning of the word, but disillusioned means to have the illusion removed from your eyes. Um, and that's the process that, you know, Don Quixote goes through. One, he puts kind of his own veil over his world to see it through this particular nightly worldview. And he goes around and he, you know, tilts at windmills and does the, the shenanigans. But within that, he also begins to reshape the way the world is around him uh, because people ha now have to respond to his uh, perspective on the world. So it's these clashes of perspectives. Um, that's one of the key things about that is perspectivism, that we got to look at something from all these different angles, uh, from different positions and come to some, maybe some kind of consensus about uh, something, a meaning um, or not. And how do you deal with that? Yeah, um, yeah excellent. Do, uh, any any uh, uh, sort of step further initiate style uh, observations, ones that perhaps you couldn't make to a class, but like you're like, oh, hey, that would be great if they had a, a, ba a little basis. I knew a bit of Kabbalah, alchemy, and, uh, you know, gematria. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean... So this one for me, it's, you, you see this initiatic imagery appearing throughout different texts. And so the, sometimes the question comes up, like, is it like archetypical? Um, you know, is the imagery just coming up because it, it is so much filling the imaginative space of humanity? Or is it because you've got a series of initiates, you know, creating art and work? Um, but there's a scene uh, and this is the scene that shifts Don Quixote's entire journey from 
being a fully mad man into doubting his own madness and then becoming sane again and being able to die. Um, and it's when he descends into the cave of Montesinos and he does this descent, right, which is classic, right, going down a crevasse, being lowered on a some kind of, you know, rope through different chambers. And um, for everybody else, he just went down there for like 15 minutes and he fell asleep on a ledge. But in, in his experience was uh, encounters with death, encounters with the frozen night, uh, encounters with uh, the maidens carrying blood, like all these, uh, you know, confrontations with death, basically what he's uh, having. So he's getting that. Uh, moment where he's able to kind of at least see the threshold and then he returns and now he now doubts even the fictional world that he created for himself he now doubts so like the doubt is going up meta levels um at this point that's 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 the kind of stuff that uh that really would wind up like Lacan or Zizek you know I, these departures from symbolic to imaginary and layers within the imaginary of course when i think of that i think of things like dmt and astral travel but it's the same thing whether it's micro microcosmically on a sociological level analyzed psychoanalytically versus mystically or in terms of magic yeah <laughs> like you know what's going is that's where like the, what's going on when you're astral traveling in aether or or something like that or or in a height, the hyperspace of DMT, it's not categorizable by these other things. Um, yeah, it's and it's a departure from the social symbolic order of Lacan, right? And but is it a departure into the imaginary or through the traumatic real? Because we don't know what the real is. We don't know what the firstness is. The Persian first. This to get to one of the things that I think started our back and forth on on instagram was talking about the ineffable and you know we talk about the ineffable one right the yeah. this unity that cannot be spoken right cannot be communicated and um you know that's the the challenge is when you go there whether whatever method or practice it gets you there that's why you see right that uh similarities across cultures and practices and and traditions in a lot of ways is that you're hitting something that is maybe nowhere or out there but you're trying to bring it back and communicate it but it's ineffable i mean that is the idea is that all the words that we're using uh, on all the podcasts around the world trying to talk about this experience will be inadequate and then just prove derrida and you know, the whole idea that we just keep throwing signifiers on top of signifiers to try to say what the signified is because we don't have the presence. Uh, yeah, so so uh, don't, not to put you on the spot, but do you think uh, Derrida and the poor postmodernists are getting a bad rap under Jordan Peterson and then that whole uh, crew? Um, see, you know, I'm not... Are they throwing the baby out with the bathwater maybe? I'm coming in from the the literary side so in terms of like the some of the bigger philosophical debates you know i don't know what what those are um because i'm kind of like delving into that world for the literary yeah. purposes and then kind of like all right um isn't it delightful how how uh, how the literature and literary uh, philosophy uh appropriates the pieces it wants from psychology theology 
philosophy and and everything in between you know probably yeah. quantum <laughs> physics too or, or whatever chemistry chemistry you know um and 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 uh and it creates this its own sort of philosophical language within the literary movement uh not necessarily just in even the theory heavy writers which as yeah. you can tell from reading my book is not something i have a problem with um, yeah. at all <laughs> yeah. people are always surprised man you can imagine because you know a bit about my profile we met on instagram um people are always surprised some of my audience are surprised when they see the <laughs> the frequency of of postmodern and post-structuralist uh, thinkers in my stuff, right? But like, you know, the way I see that, of course, that was the 60s, the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. Things have gone a long way since then. Like yeah, before yeah. I studied uh, structuralism or post-structuralism, I studied Echo because he was more recent. And so yeah. I was coming at it from a perspective that had already un unified things like Fernando Saucer and Charles Sanders Peirce and uh, the debates between the structuralists and the postmodernists. And we there's a, many, many writers that happened from the 80s up to 2000, 1995 when I started reading serious literature like that, right? And then you go back to Nietzsche. So the, it's interesting pedagogically, the order in which we encounter things really does impact our interpretation in such an immense way. Because you know that the kind of, the, the version, the interpretation of Derrida that some of these people are railing against and, and they do often go shockingly to the ad hominem attacks, which I find really curious um with him you know he's an awful he was an awful person it's like i don't know anything about him and i don't know what knowing anything about him would have anything to do with his analysis of plato which is yes. you know the main thing about him <laughs> um and analysis is a nice nice word for what it was he's very nietzschean man he's very Nietzsche. he was you know um in the, just smashing shit around with a hammer don't you think yeah well i mean and that's it's it's interesting because Sometimes I think uh, in the world of academia, like we stay in there too long and we forget that the rest of the world doesn't care about any of the stuff we're having conversations about really. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I was teaching an intro to um, literary theory. And so we started with the structuralist and went forward because we didn't have long enough in the session to do all of, all of everything. But um, you know, there's so many, and I'm in the south of the U.S., right? <laughs> so there's so many um, students that still haven't even really dabbled in postmodernist thinking. Um, they're still very structuralist and just hanging on to that for dear life, right? As we do <laughs> with structures in our lives. And so that class was really um, a challenging course to move them through even like how do you deconstruct your you know your words your language your systems yourself um and and like push them in that way um and so you just see that a lot of times culturally we haven't even really everybody's not on the same page even getting past structuralism yeah <laughs> i think in practice in lived reality yeah they're both useful in their own way and uh they're not usually uh isolated in 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 their use and study which is why uh, you know dr sledge recently replied on a live stream do why which do what which is he anglo-american like analytical or continental in his philosophical division and he's like well i study both because i do philosophy <laughs> so yeah. Like, yeah yes 
but you can see how uh, the, the it, that's that's ideological thinking, right? Like that you that this is the result of mass media and pop culture and and politicization, and it, it gets you know it it starts being applied by the masses, shall we say, in in the reverse and wrong way that that fails to indicate what its actual purpose is, and and you have to look at philosophical movements themselves and ideas themselves hermeneutically, right? Otherwise it's sort of arbitrary totalitarianism and closure of, of basic basic truth figures or something yeah. like that <laughs> no yeah well and that's i mean that's hopefully i think when i'm being most uh idealistic about the idea of a university education is that you're going to bring people together and they're going to study each other's fields and see that there's so many different perspectives and worldviews that by the time you come through that, you know, you're able to look at a lot of different things in a lot of different ways, at least a little bit dabble in all these different things. Um, but I don't know if that's always happening. Um, but yeah. that's, that's a whole other can of worms. I was always happiest and, and I'm very glad I did grad school in an interdisciplinary setting, in an ecumenical setting. Um, uh, you know, I could have gone to uh, a diocesan Roman Catholic seminary because I was in at the time in you know uh, in line for the Roman Catholic diaconate but then you know after a year of, of divinity school it was like no and I went Anglican priesthood um, but yeah being in a in a primarily academic setting if you're in a diocesan environment you're learning the dogma of that denomination and if you're you know in a different environment man the Lutherans I encountered were cool. They were, they, they, they like some, when you really get into some of Luther's theology, it's pretty groovy. Like, uh, I was talking with one guy once, I mentioned this before on the podcast, but fuck it, uh, it's a good story. And we're talking about debating uh, apocatastasis, right? And I was like, well, if universal salvation is accepted in Lutheranism, um, and I don't, I don't know if it was always, I don't know if Luther did, but it definitely is now um, in modern Luther, Lutheranism or Evangelische Kirche. Um, and I said, then what's, you know, how, do, how does that, what's the point in getting saved? If you're going, if you're getting, if everyone's going to heaven every, anyway, what's the point in getting saved? And his blonde, blonde hair, and he's this rugged carpenter, he just puts his arm on my shoulder, he's like, brother, so you can live a grace-filled life. And I was <laughs> like, damn, that's some elegant theology, actually. Yeah. That's really beautiful in, a, in, a, in an amazing way. Um, it, okay. I like it better than some other versions of the same of similar models. This makes me think of um, right. I've been uh, enjoying reading your book, and uh, thank you. Yeah, you said some very. I was very flattered by the words you said on Instagram. Thank no, you. It, it's really cool. I'm already like, who am I going to send this book to? Um, so I've got a list of folks, um, but oh crap! I think I forgot where I was going. <laughs> there may be a future for me in academia yet we shall see yeah no i mean okay so one one idea that came up is you were talking about um you know not shackling everybody down under um you know these particular interpretations dogmas um and that we need to open up to have any kind of um, potential experience with the, with the divine, the event, right? That there's, 
this openness that we need to have to that. And then I was thinking about orthodoxy and, you know, my background is coming from Mormonism. And so I went into that, like, what would that headspace be like from a very kind of orthodox headspace? And I was thinking that would be the idea that like, well, we already know all the uh, divine event. God's told us how to live divinely and as a divine event constantly. And so just follow what we tell you and that will equal living a divine event. Um, and so that's very different from the grace-filled life as an option. This is the life is following all the rules. Um, so I was just thinking of that as another way that orthodoxy can really kind of try to manipulate that openness of the possible event or the epiclesis that you talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, it's a, and by the way, for those listening, we're talking about my book, the ethics of understanding God under my, uh, uh, my real name. And, uh, it's sort of my, my wee opus and, uh, yeah, check it out. Um, I was saying the, so yeah, the idea of, um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I mean part of me was like we shouldn't get stoned but you were like we get stoned I'm like okay okay I never yeah it's it's cool I I, I didn't smoke weed well uh, until after I you know was out of grad school <laughs> I was already accepted into my PhD before I first smoked weed so like you know but sort of that that that's that's how I you know that's how I did it straight through I don't think if I had yeah. taken out time you know, to do any of that shenanigans. I don't, I don't think you can do that by 24. Right. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. yeah. No. Um, and if you can, well, God bless you. But so, okay. I, we're talking. Oh yeah. That's where I think the ethical establishment is so important. Um, yeah. That's where, where you see it, the, the establishment of the ethical being, because, because the ethics are of course subjective. They're, you know, our relationship to good and evil. Um, and if, if they're established, by by a domineering authority right then then they remove agency from the subject so ethics have to be ultimately determined by the subject that's why we see in magical orders and vows um uh lines of of exception for the conscience right it's like blah 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 but if your conscience you know ultimately dictates and that was the big split from the anglican church to the roman catholic ultimately theologically was them saying do what the church says but more important, but after your conscience, you know, so yeah. follow your conscience first, if conscience trumps that we're not in the Roman Catholic Church, and I'm talking in strict theological terms, that yeah. is yeah. not the case. And that's where I encountered a problem too. So that's where I get into talking about the event, the act, and the, the ethical determinism that happens from significant events, which I think are uh, necessarily traumatic as they are encounters of or shatterings of the symbolic order psychoanalytically, which I took from Lacan, of course, uh, Jacques Lacan, and encountering the real in a way that, of course, allows us to then reconfigure our symbolic order in a new way. And that, of course, is is beautifully Kabbalistic as well, um, though there's no indication of the book that I have any background in in magic or or the occult or anything like that. I mean, you know as well as I, how fast would I have been out of that school? right? Like, yeah, done. I had to be careful when I asked, like, what's the actual origin of the word hesed? And you know, and the teacher like, looks at me and like, like locks eyes on me right away. Then she's like, well, it's an interesting word. Um, And you know, she was awesome. Um, I mean, I was reading your book. And as I'm, I'm, I'm having a great time reading it. I'm sitting outside in the hot Louisiana, you know, backyard, 
reading your book and uh awesome. i just like taking me on this journey through you know this idea that underneath all of this what you're doing is like this heavily theoretical and philosophical explanation of the processes of magic um and so i'm like this is a, a magic thesis um right here and it's putting it into terms which is what theory is for right theory is this unifying web of ideas that we can all plug into whether it be from literature or from the occult or wherever and engage in these conversations in terms that more or less we can work with right yeah the play of traces as derrida uh says um it's and it, it's it's when you when you liberate the sign the sign from and the signifier and and you know trespass across that uh, metaphysics of presence laid down by platonic metaphysics and you open things up to new meaning right and this isn't the uh quick descent into the hellscapes of rampant relativism that we see portrayed in the universities today um where anything is everything and we are all together you know i am he is you are you know it's like no as fun as that would and psychedelic as that would be that's not the case um there's there's more to it than that much more interesting stuff and that's where in the book i ended up of course as you see at some key moments all of a sudden slipping through a friend through french philosophers into meister eckhart and negative uh -huh. theology right yeah yeah there's a lot of sidesteps like ninjutsu in this in the book as you probably noticed well, I mean, I think you handled them really well in terms of the way that you brought in theory at every turn to relate to what's going on, which I mean, is just that's, that's how you do the craft of academic writing, you know, well, uh, is you always have your own back. <laughs> I do love the craft, actually. Yeah. I'm a, I've been called a stylist a few times by my professors. You, you oh, oh, very few people, you're the only guest in my podcast who actually knows exactly what that means in that context. <laughs> you're like, I know what that means. And it doesn't just mean one thing. It's like, is it a compliment? Is it an insult? Neither? Yeah. yeah it, um, anyway, um, yeah, you know, I used to sleep with the MLA guide to writers of research papers uh, under my bed every night in high school, man. Yeah. Well, so this conversation is really, for me, really important, actually, because my like movement into working with magic and just like whatever experience, something flipped for me. And I had like, it was when I was teaching this class and we're reading Derrida and I'm reading Difference. And uh, like, I just have, you know, this profound um, experience and then series of kind of intuitive experiences that I followed after that while I'm thinking I'm going insane. Uh, so I'm like, I don't know if I'm losing my mind or something's happening. I mean, I had been left, you know, spirituality behind for years at this point, um, having left, you know, growing up Mormon. And um, then as I'm reading this text that we're talking about, you know, these concepts that we're talking about of the things that you can't touch the ineffable, you know, the, that space of difference. That's when I had that, like an opening up of everything. Um, so that's, it's been really powerful for me to approach um, magic theoretically from that kind of lens.
yeah good I, uh, yeah i'm glad that uh <laughs> that 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 it's it's very interesting to uh the the small section probably i don't know what how large it is of, of people who re-enter or enter spirituality and let alone magic um via philosophy and i don't think that's as common these days anymore probably more in in the time of agrippa and trithemius that was de rigueur but um but today yeah i don't know how many people you know how that have that experience so that's very interesting maybe you can um yeah so maybe you could share a bit about your your esoteric background uh, beginning fascinatingly uh, I've, I've been to Salt Lake City. I've seen the big, beautiful church. And uh, I've, I, when I was working marketing jobs in grad school, I often ended up teamed up with Mormon people, you know, selling Cutco knives in the summer before I went, had to go to a, a neophyte initiation rehearsal at the temple. Um, this one Mormon kid crashed his car once. His new wife was very unhappy. It was, oh. it was cool. So um, I have a lot of fascination by Mormonism um, as an outsider. And um, I've only been slightly aware of the esoteric elements still alive within it. And you know all about that. Yeah. Um, How fucking cool is that? So this, this is, um, this will be hopefully an interesting conversation. I'm hoping maybe if there's some other uh, closeted, uh, you know, ex-Mormon or current Mormon magicians, you know, who are doing this kind of stuff that maybe we have a conversation. There's only one other person I've ever met that, uh, you know, is working this kind of stuff. Matt Johnson, Spear of Fire Tarot, I believe. I believe. I hope, oh, I hope it wasn't Jovi. Anyway, I think he was Mormon. If I'm wrong, um, uh, John, John R. King, the fourth of, of Imperial Art. The, the, he's, he's Mormon background, but that's all I know. Anyway, yeah. continue. Um, yeah. So... I mean, I, you know, grew up in the church my whole life. My parents were converts and um, it's interesting because you get a training in magic worldview and, and even magical practices, um, but they're very much confined within how and when you can use them within the church's dogma, right? So it's interesting because there's an opening for the magical and the um, epiclectic, as, is that how you'd say it? Yeah. I haven't said yeah. these words out loud, but yeah, these are epic letters. Yeah. And so, I actually haven't seen it used much in the adjectival form. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it has been, but yeah, no, that's the term from liturgy that describes the moment the Holy Spirit transforms the blood and wine, the bread and blood, blood. <laughs> yeah. Into, uh, into, you know, magic uh, talismans of uh, sin cleansing Jesus uh, unification. Yeah. And so I remember like one of these moments as a kid, I, I could see people glowing. <laughs> right. And yeah. so I, I remember being at church and, and I tell my mom like, Oh, like that person's like glowing or shining or something. And my mom's like, well, maybe that's a spiritual gift. Maybe you can see, you know, when the spirit's on somebody. Um, but we don't talk about those. And so there's this very like silent aspect of spiritual gifts but there is the idea of these, um, but you don't talk about it. That's just like Walder School. <laughs> it's like Steiner could be the only clairvoyant. Shut up. Just him. Yeah. Okay, okay you too, but don't tell anybody. Yeah. Well, it's weird because there's the contradiction like you're supposed, you're supposed to be getting revelation because you have the gift of the Holy Spirit and you're living a worthy life. Um, and then in some cases you have the priesthood. Um, 
but right, all of those actions are still curtailed um, in so many ways. Uh, but that was like my first kind of, you know, I don't know whatever experience. Now when I talk to people, I have to put it in terms that are no longer Mormon. Like I'm shifting the terms and I'm like, I guess I can see auras, but that sounds weird to me too, to say. Um, but in the, in the church, like you're trained up pretty young, starting at 12, you get uh, into the Aaronic priesthood. If you're living all the rules and you memorize all the verses, you know, and you show up. And so, um, you know, starting early, you're, you know, go into the priesthood. And then the expectation is that you do the mission, right? That you go and you be a missionary for two years, uh, full-time at your own expense to convert people to Mormonism. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of pressure culturally for that. But within that part of the process, when you're going through the, the priesthood, the, there's the Aaronic, and then there's the Melchizedek priesthood, the higher priesthood. And part of that is going through an initiatic experience called the endowment, which is not talked about much. It doesn't happen at the regular chapels you go to on Sunday. It's only in the temples, like what you'd see in Salt Lake. Um, and it's like, uh, you go straight into, you know, ritualistic initiatory processes with altars and oils and washings and anointings and, you know, grips, tokens, signs, penalties, um, and robes, you know, from like zero to 60, because wow. you, don't, you don't know anything about this. I grew up my whole life in the church. And the only thing you hear about the temple is you're going to go and you're going to, uh, make promises with God and it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> so that, do you think that accounts for some of the, the, the clever staying power in Mormonism? Like you, you're going into this like level up system of divinization, which we all know, uh, men are very attracted to that. Um, my best friend's dad growing up was the head of the communications department head at Simon Fraser university, very good mm -hmm. university here. And is the expert foremost expert on video games and their influence on children. Oh, really wow. fat. Yeah, he's won so many international awards. It's insane. Stephen Klein, Dr. Stephen Klein, fascinating researcher, a uh, strange guy to grow up with. Um, <laughs> you know, he was a harsh dad, but uh, whatever. Um, the uh, I was going to say that we're just, <laughs> I lost my track, but it was the uh, law. Mormon, Mormon temple stuff. Oh yeah, the 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 appeal of in in masculine boys of of going up through levels and having skill achievements graded through levels, they did massive studies on. And so that when I first heard that he mentioned that at some dinner party, I was very interested because, of course, I was you know in the Golden Dawn and from from fifteen, and I heard that I was like, that's a fascinating thing to keep in mind when I, when you consider. The role that these sort of structures play in our life from video games to mystical orders yeah there it's a powerful mechanism and now to hear that that's a mechanism also at play in the mormon inner inner order um it makes a lot of sense right because i know to a lot of people mormonism doesn't make sense like why yeah. do these people keep doing this um no i think um and it's it's interesting because i mean it's powerful um you put someone through an initiatory experience, especially when they're completely unprepared. Um, it's going to be hugely transformative, but then you don't allow them to talk to anyone about it. 
you can't talk about it even with another member of the church outside the temple. So you don't get to sit down with somebody and say, hey, can we talk about what just happened to me? Um, the only way you get to go back is then you go and you do the same ceremonies for the dead, for the deceased, because Mormons have that uh, you know, idea that there's going to be this kind of salvation process that has to take place in the physical realm, but you can do it on behalf of someone who's deceased if they accept it. Wow. Um, so, so uh, when did you leave Mormonism? Um, and, and actually before that, can I ask, so that's a lot of initiation structured, and we know that it historically literally does come from Freemasonry, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 But is there, was there much in terms of any sort of spirit evocation? Mm. So it's interesting. I mean, this, this ritual, the endowment ritual has evolved, you know, since the days of Joseph Smith, which are like 1830s up through the present. And so there's really great books that you can read that document the, the changes and transformations of the ceremony. Um, another thing about the ceremony is the changes that are made. You make an oath to never talk about what has changed when something changes. So the next generation that comes through doesn't know there were ever any changes. Really? Um, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> in this, um, what you're doing is the, the the Mormon ceremony is to teach you how to cross the veil. And so when you die, you know the words, phrases, and signs uh, to be able to pass the sentinels that stand as guardians before the presence of God. So it's very, it's, it's like veil-centric ceremony, um, but the narrative of the ritual is the narrative of the Garden of Eden, but each candidate is Adam and or Eve. Um, and so you go through this experience of the being cast out, uh, right? Having to regain communication with God, getting promises and covenants and knowing how to recognize messengers. Um, and then eventually you cross the veil, which is where you encounter um, God. And you have to know the right words and phrases so that you can be accepted into godhood, which in Mormonism, that's the, the end goal of Mormonism is that you become um, a god. You get you become divine and get godhood. Wow, I've, I've never heard of that idea before. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's frighteningly similar to other things I love. Um, yeah. I'm fascinated by uh, that he would have fit right in with Theodore Roos and, and the OTO founders like Franz Hartman and, and them, they would have uh, all been pals. And, and uh... well, yeah, I mean, we know that he was reading the, you know, the keys of Solomon. We know exactly what edition he was able to look at because they went through the library records. So they know Joseph Smith was looking at, you know, ceremonial magic um, and practicing it. Um, and if you go Google stuff like the patriarchal parchment um, and things like that, that uh, you might put up Joseph Smith patriarchal parchment um, and things like that, you can see some of the type of talismans they were working with. Um, you know, you've got magic garments, robes, aprons. Um, now, none of this is currently approved by the Mormon church for 
as as anything resembling uh, doctrine or doctrine, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's interesting the the church and so man, they're I'm not like, summoning guetic demons I'm, at I'm, any level of the Mormon Church, are they? The summoning demons? Yeah, go like goetic spirits. Oh no, they're totally turning a blind eye to it. That, that's the the move is we're ignoring the fact that the founder was doing you know Solomonic magic with the Goetia. Like we're not going to talk about that. Um, but the church has kind of this, uh, towards the public, it publishes these essays that are historical and talk about like Joseph Smith, you know, had seer stones that he put in a hat and scried and then had revelations. Um, but you never get told that within the church. So the publications that the church produces for the outside world versus for the inside of the church are two different type of texts. And, um, it's really interesting how a lot of the internal active membership don't always have uh, aren't aware of some of the even the publications the church is making that are very much like contradictory to the version of mormon history that i was taught as uh, you know a member i can't help but think that it would have been an even greater show than it already was uh if they had had like Solomonic talismanic rituals, spells being done in big love. <laughs> Bill Paxton. That would have been great. Because <laughs> they were already practicing an old uh, a heretical form of Mormonism, including uh, polygamy. That would have been even, see, if they had had a good occult consultant on that film, yes, I'm talking to you, Hollywood, they could have added some of those little things in there, and people would have been like, wait what the fuck and it's like make no comment about it. it's like then it's like oh it's it's you know they all have their regulated sex nights with each other and then it's talisman consecration night and they go do that after dinner and or they get up in the sunrise and do it and then they make breakfast and go about their day running their superstores like well people would have that would have been at so much depth right and it yeah. would have been super authentic now no now. comment on it ever they're just like <laughs> check out these crazy rituals that some of these sex used to do and could have done and maybe some of them still did well i think one thing that that's interesting with the the kind of the mormon tradition is it has so much relationship to ceremonial magic and other orders and traditions um this is my other side note for you the key word of the temple ritual originally um was in the adamic language or the language of adam uh you know supposedly Right, according to, to the teachings, and it is pe le el. So P E L E E L uh, was the final keyword uh, for the priesthood. So just when I'm thinking of you know things that you see uh, with those four letters P E L E. Uh, uh, um, I mean, do you think he had access to any of of uh, these writings? You know, I think there could be really interesting research there. I've never heard anybody say it, and I've never seen any documentation to back it up. But I just don't know if anybody's taken the time to, to do that research, because the, even the narratives of how they explain their revelations and their processes of getting this divine wisdom seem strikingly similar to me. Um, we have to tag Deborah Harkness. She can handle this for us. All right. Yeah. So, so she'll, she'll go do the research and we'll publish it. It's a great research project. I'm sure uh, she'd be a research assistant. Yeah. yeah. Um, she does amazing academic work. Um, yeah. 
since since I've been uh, with my mom in Vancouver, we watched the the Deborah Harkness TV show. You know, it was it was it was what it was. So okay, um, I don't know about the books, but her research in in D studies in Enochian and and Elizabethan histories, fabulous. I don't know if you've ever read any of her papers and journals or checked her stuff out on academia.edu. Like yeah. Um, I hate that website, but uh, yeah, no, check out Deborah Harkness's work on that stuff. It's amazing. She's yeah. a great scholar. Um, I will. I think that there's a lot to to look at. What I, I think what I was going at originally before the detour of Pele. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. That's what tonight's about, are about uh, detours. We're never going to get to the real anyway. We'll just move back and forth around it. Um, no, but... Um, within Mormonism, you get this ritual put on you, you get this endowment. Um, and that's when you get when people talk about the special underwear that Mormons wear, that's when you get this and you have to wear it all the time after that. Um, and so all of that happens, you don't get to talk to anybody about it outside of the space of the temple. And um, you don't do any of the practices outside of the temple. So there is no way to recreate or use any of this knowledge necessarily in your daily life. Mm. And so for me, that was a big draw. As I was leaving the church, I moved, I shifted into Freemasonry, which is right. Uh, because one day I was at a bookstore and I grab, because the compass and square are symbols that are used in the Mormon ritual. Um, they're what's embroidered on the, the garment. Man, I'm probably going to get excommunicated if anybody listens to this because I haven't officially left the church, but join the club. Yeah. Um, my parents will be disappointed, though. Uh, but um, they're not going to see this, man. Yeah. Have you seen? Have you checked out the stuff people are watching? Your parents are too busy watching BTS on TikTok. <laughs> um, Let's be well, real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, um, but yeah, you don't have any kind of practice in your daily life. And so I shifted into masonry because I found this book in the bookstore, opened it up and I'm going like, wait, those are the same signs and tokens and things that we did in the temple. What someone else knows this stuff, right? Because in the church, you're told this was a divine revelation straight from God. And there's no historical context that this was a, a ritual that was developed and borrowed and influenced and changed right? This is the divine word directly from God. The ceremony is perfect and has no relationship to anything else out in the world. And so a lot of people in the church told me not to go into masonry, um, which is just interesting. Now we know why. Yeah. I actually did the Knights of Columbus first initiation um, <laughs> yeah. during my time as a Roman Catholic. Um, and then the, the, you know, the next year I did the Freemason. <laughs> hey, it was, it was the years right after, it was the couple, two years right after I had to close Temple Tehuti in Vancouver. So I was mm. floundering for something, uh, but you know, well, I, I guess that's why I eventually joined a band. <laughs> yeah. Well, one only thing that, that could compete ecstatically with the Golden Dawn Temple or that any kind of group doing that level of magic is a, is a fucking touring band. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whenever I, I left and like lost that spiritual part of my life, like for me, ritual and ceremony became profoundly meaningful because of that experience. Now, it was messed up 
but it was also powerful and transformative as an initiation should be. So I think there's something functional there, but the everything is clamped down so tight around it with the culture and the dogma of the church that it's stifled, right? It's, it's you're going to have this experience, but we're telling you to put off crossing the veil until you actually die. Uh, it's so, so similar to uh, initiatory formulas going back to Eleusis that it, it's not even funny, but what's, what I notice is like, you're describing a religion that's keeping its mystery. It's it's keeping the celebration of its mysteries in a very close quarter. So they're they're almost in a way denying agency of the defining event. They're denying agency of the event, and they're acting on behalf of the subject, the subject, who can't configure then. Uh, uh, a real capital art epicletic experience because it's being artificially mediated by a totalitarian structure. Yes. Yes. This is every time I read my old book, this is how I thought when I was 24, 25, at the height of my, oh, yeah. my academic career. And, you know, sometimes I read that thing in and I'm like, oh, this is shit. This is shit. And then I keep reading. It's like, oh no that makes sense and then i keep going and then i convince myself all over again i was like damn i was smarter back then motherfucker you know <laughs> i don't know what happened i should have written fewer web comics and uh you know done less mushrooms maybe no 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 the stuff i'm <laughs> writing right now actually is very exciting i was telling you about that um and I'm, I'm excited this is my first podcast back since my three-week break to meet a writing deadline for uh the first actual occult piece of writing i will have produced since I was like a child. Um, that's yeah, amazing. so that's very exciting um, because the stuff I have out there is stuff one from age like 15 to 23 yeah. and just pseudepigraphy, I call it. It's like my pseudepigraphy. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. the shit I wrote. If it, if it helps you, if you're in the GD and working that system, guaranteed it's gonna, every little piece counts. And anyone, any serious GD practitioner, we all know like, even if something sort of sucks, we still really sort of want it because it's like, there's not much out there. We have very yeah. limited uh, material. It's not like Freemasonry where you guys have hundreds and hundreds of years of literature. Can, can you tell us more? Uh, tell me the story of what's your full Masonic story? Because it sounds like you uh, have more years of experience now in Masonry than you ever did in Mormonism. Am I right about that? Well, I, from the time I was 17 is when I went through the, the endowment and then I you know, went on a mission. I spent two years in Mexico uh, as a missionary knocking doors, you know, talking to people um, and then came back. I got married in the temple, which is the, the that's the, the top notch ceremony is for salvation. You must be married in the temple as well um, to have the, the eternal family, right? You have to have the yeah. both. But um, I stayed in the church um, until about 27, 28. Um, so I had those kind of 28 years of life uh, in that context. And then um, I went into masonry, though, before I left the church. Um, but it was kind of like a transition for me because it became a place in my life um, because I was constantly at fear of losing my temple recommend, which is you have to have to get into the temple, um, which means you're paying 10 percent of all your income to the church. You're, you know, living all the standards all of those things. So to be able to access 
the most sacred aspect of your worship, you have to have this card, right, to get in. Um, and so I was a poor college student, you know, I couldn't afford to pay 10% of my money. So I'm always worried that they're going to, you know, take my card for that. Um, and then eventually, you know, having views that conflict with the, uh, right, the quorum of the 12 apostles and stuff like that, then you're in real trouble. And so eventually I did lose it. Um, but that was kind of my way to shift into something that was contemplative ritual, um, you know, kind of spiritually focused um, to move into masonry. It seemed like a really natural um, shift. And then, of course, learning a whole different kind of symbolic structure uh, and experiences. So I began in masonry back in, it was like 2006. Um, and so I've been master of two different lodges. Um, and then I'm the degree master for the 30th degree, the Knight Kadosh degree in the uh, ancient and accepted Scottish Rite here, um, which means I'm in charge of the cast and make sure the degree is gonna happen and get put on. Um, and then uh, I'm also in a lodge out in New Orleans that does um, some older ritual in Spanish. So we have one lodge in the state that still practices the Spanish from the Spanish colonization period in Louisiana. So there's some cool stuff there. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, so how long have you been in Masonry in total then? Oh, 15 years, 16 yeah, years? Yeah, around 15, 16. Yeah. yeah. So you started just, uh, 2005, 2006. Yeah. That was like, you know, a year two or two after I did, uh, well, went through one degree and then I, it wasn't my thing really, but I will finish Blue Lodge eventually. I've been saying that for a while, but I, it's true. It's true um yeah. just got to find the right one which apparently is not how it's supposed to work but as as everyone who's heard my story can admit i'm definitely an exception man that that whole like tricking me with the british flag they're like there's no <laughs> british thing and then they like surprise we got the british flag it's like how is that funny how, like how is that funny uh -huh. like, to like you know to say that that's not going to happen then that that happens it's like Especially after just like departing from an order, the last thing you want, you're, you're, you're highly sensitive to any chicanery. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I think that that's one of the things that kind of, I was contemplating this thinking about how challenging it can be to work with a group, um, right? Which is yeah. like a common conversation. We talk um, about that a lot on this podcast, as you know. Do you actually, do you, have you listened to this podcast? Yes. Yes, I have. I listen to this podcast all the time. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. When you first reached out and said you wanted to do this, I was like, he doesn't listen to this podcast. What's he hawking? No, <laughs> like, uh, but you're the first PhD who's reached out to me. And so, as I, I told you, I sort of refrained from that because uh, I part, partly I didn't, didn't want to scare off like, um, I wanted this to be a populist podcast. I wanted, uh, you know. I, I've talked to people who have never done any ma ritual magic, and I like that. Yeah. And I knew if I started off with like all my PhD friends, like, <laughs> no, I wouldn't ever talk to normal people, really. <laughs> you know. Um, so I'm very honored for you to be popping this podcast, PhD Cherry. Thank you, I, uh, sincerely. Yeah. Now, I, now I'll finally I'll finally reply to Stephen Skinner now and give him a good date. Heck yeah! No, I mean I think. Um, one of the big services that I think we need to do in terms of shifting how we approach the academic in, in any context. I mean, the writing that you did in the ethics of understanding God 
you know, it's academic writing about magic. You don't directly say you're writing about magic, but anybody who knows their stuff is going to know what's happening, the moves you're making. But it is happening at a level that, right, it's a luxury to get to go to grad school and sit around and read philosophy all day, which most people don't have. Um, and so being able to make sure that we can always communicate those ideas in like normal human language <laughs> is really important because, you know, it's just, it's no value to anybody if, if there's a conversation happening, you know, off here. And that's why I think if we bring a conversation that has the academic, the benefits of an academic analysis and background and research, but bring them into a conversation that's accessible, then I think that's like the key, you know, goal. Yeah. Yes. I almost went the reverse direction when I wrote that because I was, I was really classically going back to the purpose of what all of these, these uh, philosophies, theologies and things are, and what's their purpose. The purpose is to describe experience, which includes thoughts and everything else within all of its semiotic orders of relevance. And so having had such unique experiences from initiation when I was seven in transcendental meditation, right? And then again at 10, then, you know, reclaiming tradition in Wicca, then Amork, then uh, Druidry, then Golden Dawn at 15, all of that by 15. Uh, and then just everything after that, by the time I got to grad school when I was 20, I was very curious as to what all of this sort of meant in a philosophical and theological. And actually, there, there is a field called philosophical theology, which is what I wrote in. That's the field. Obviously, I, I talk heavily about semiotics, though it's not a work of semiotics, mm -hmm. but because I, I follow the metaphysician and psychoanalytic philosopher um, Robert Corrington very heavily, as you noticed. And he's a fascinating American philosopher. Um, his recent book is called Deep Pantheism and just an amazing semiotician uh, and remarkable human being who uh, talks a lot about Wilhelm Reich and also his struggle with manic depression. So just uh, you know, one of these great minds that we probably won't really notice for a hundred years. I don't think we're our heads are too full of stuff to begin to start looking at a reconfiguration of metaphysics based on the basic uh, semiotic models, which grew out of linguistics and, and structuralist philosophy, right? Like we don't have the time for that. We don't have the time. We got too many comic books to write and read. Well, so I think this is a cool place where we can connect this in, in a real practical way to to kind of the practice of magic is and what Finally, you're thinking yeah. about and what you're you know you're looking at is how to have those experiences where you are acting uh in unison you're making an act and then the divine is making a reciprocal response to your act and then you're working in unity right with, yeah. with having that experience of the real or of the presence um which you know, that's, that's the, when, you know, we're reading different authors and they're talking about, you know, you're gonna feel like you're connected to everything or the divine is, you know, this all white light and, and all these different descriptions of that uh, kind of mystical experience. There are these ways to, to discuss it and that help you make that step. For me, I think reading Derrida and really understanding, you know, signifier signified in the distance between them, 
Wentz Wright, is the idea that if we have the word cat, right, that's a word, C-A-T, if I say that, anybody could imagine any cat out there possible ever. So one signifier turns into a million different, right, signifies. Well, yeah, and that, that in my mind. And that was the development, really, that the American Charles Sanders purse added on to Ferdinand de Saussure, the Swiss linguist, uh, a dual schemata with the interpretant model in the Trinitarian leading to unlimited semiosis, right? And uh, I'm still honestly, um, I mean, I'm so sad that we've lost Umberto Eco because I really wish he had been alive to see uh, what's going on. Yeah. You know, like if there was a mind that I could, could, could remanifest right now, it would be Umberto Eco because he was so clever and so incisive, especially and, and remarkably on aspects of, of daily social life, just daily being a human, right? Which, you know, Zizek's good at cinema and a lot of stuff, but I don't know anyone, if anyone can say that Zizek's particularly good at being a human. <laughs> There's a recent Hollywood movie that came out with some big actors in it, right? In which he's actually a simulation in a futuristic reality. Wow. And he played himself as a, as a hologram simulation. Uh, it's a big movie on Netflix, actually. I'm sure people have seen it. Um, yeah, anyway. Please. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I think for, for like that ineffable, unspeakable experience. Um, you know, I had, I had an experience and then the way that I got it more, I mean, I had this background already in ritual and ceremony and a magic worldview um, and masonry, but really what kept me moving into magical practice um, and like the Western mystery tradition was this experience with that ineffable was something that's unspeakable that you can't communicate. Um, and the only people that I re read that were touching on it were out of the Western mystery tradition, right? Is authors laying out that pathway and saying, this is an experience that's going to happen. This is something that's going to happen. And it's dramatized in different ways by different authors, but yeah. that internal experience, that's why, that's the only reason why I'm still continuing any kind of path is because I, I had this experience somebody else got the closest to describing it that is possible even though they're not equal right they, they're never going to be the same yeah well that's yeah that was that was definitely the challenge for me like um it it's it's a lot easier the way stephen skinner or even alistair crowley describe magic and the experience of of magic because i consider initiation a, a magical act um mm -hmm. especially in the golden dawn tradition uh, initiation is different slightly from, I think, other forms of initiation that it's mostly based on treating the human being as a talisman. Mm -hmm. um, whereas other initiation forms, I think, are slightly different, slightly less intentionally magical in yeah. that regard. Um, well, there's this moment, sorry to jump in here, but wow. as you're talking about the, the body as a talisman, I remember in the Mormon tradition, there's two versions basically that exist of the ritual one is with live performers and one is a video um, and they only do the live performances in very few temples so like the salt lake temple they have the live performance there which is more accurate to the original historical you know ceremony and i went to see it in salt lake and when elohim and jehovah create adam 
who is Michael the Archangel in Mormon doctrine. Michael becomes Adam. But they have the actor and they come up and they actually touched his body in these ways that I was like, what are they doing? Like, how are they, what are they doing to create Adam? And now just recently I, I was like contemplating this and going, are they, is this some type of, you know, reproduction of putting the, you know, the divine names into the, you know, aura and creating this person? Uh, if anybody else has seen the, the live Mormon endowment, let me know if they figured out what was going on with the way they were touching people. But it's, it sounds sort of like it. Yeah, yeah. That was the only thing that I could connect it with but the creation of the new adam huh yeah well and i mean there's so many little hints in these if you start thinking of like okay well how do you use the points and the divine names to then begin to structure a soul uh you know consolidate a consciousness then you know you're along a lot of similar ideas yeah yeah um, what sort of magic do you practice these days? Yeah, so I started out not having, uh, you know, a tradition to follow. I had the Mormon variations and Masonic work, which also has a lot of aspects, especially in the Scottish Rite of stuff you would see in ceremonial magic. Um, but I started working on... I created my own uh, ceremony for opening and uh, you know clearing uh, based on the the Mormon uh, rituals, which we don't have. There is no opening ceremony, but there's an approach to the divine that you take with certain gestures and movements and uh, words. And so, you know, I used those in the beginning of my practice and created my own ceremony with the kind of ceremonial tools that I had at hand from my my own experience and just kind of following some intuition um, and had some really good responses out of that um, really good experiences and with that then I began to go like okay I want to make sure that I have some you know protection I'm going to look at people who are pros at this type of work um, and so that's when I started looking at like Golden Dawn, uh, Hermetic Kabbalah, those kind of practices to begin to say, well, how do I make sure I'm not going to end up with the wrong entities or in the wrong places? Um, and so that's been my research now is going through um, a lot of the self-initiatic uh, Golden Dawn material. And, but I still practice these kind of ceremonies that I've created for uh, I don't know exactly what it'd be some type of scrying uh, work. What's uh, what's your, do you have a, do you have a favorite scrying device or are you, or are you uh, more just eyes closed? Um, I've, I've worked with um, David Chaim Smith's. Uh, Wonderful. That, that stuff's amazing. Like just the first key alone. You're like, yes, yes, that is, <laughs> that is, that is correct. That is yeah. correct. Um, I'm, so, I'm really, um, I'm really, uh, yeah, I've spent many hours with the second key and I still don't feel I have the same relationship to it that I do to the first one. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Despite watching that video several times over the second key video and, and uh, I need to read more of the book, but I've been busy with my own writing. As you know, I'm, I'm contributing my own review of self, the self, current self-initiation. Like I got all of the stuff here. I, I just finished Frater Acker's Rosicrucian Mat, which I cover to cover. Oh, yeah. I'm working, yeah. working on that. And then some other great ones. So I, I had to re-go through a bunch of books. I have never, um, never I, I had no need to really go through on my own again. Um, and of course, there's the classic one that everyone knows that we that we all studied throughout the 90s uh, in my time was is the 72 uh, techniques of high magic by Stephen Skinner. Um, Frater Acker's Rosicrucian magic has a very interesting self initiation rite for Rosicrucianism developed by the 18th century OGRC order of the golden rosy cross, of course, and by one of its founders, Mr. Uh, Weitz, I think it was a blah, 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 something Weitz. Mm -hmm. then there's this remarkable thing i haven't gotten to look at yet but i have to comment on it because it's a major thing enochian invoke evocation by a thelemite and uh the, from what i've seen it it's wild it's wild i don't know if it makes sense yet and looking at this from the perspective i have now versus 20 years ago when i used it just as a, a helpful guide i was recommended to use it as a helpful guide the Chick Cicero self-initiation book when I was an early hierophant because it's got a lot of stuff in there that's useful for um, that. And this uh, travesty, Kabbalah, Magic, and the Great Work of Self-Transformation by Liam Thomas Christopher, which um, uh, has, I get more people damaged by the system coming to me than any other iteration of self-initiatory practice that ex is extant today. And then one of my favorites, by an old professor of mine from sem in seminary, a guest lecturer, we had Richard Rohr, the Franciscan father, Adam's return, the five promises of male initiation. And a lot of Roman Catholics uh, really don't like him. And that's why I love him so much. The heretics are always the best, especially the Franciscan heretics. You can't beat a Franciscan heretic except maybe for Thomas Merton. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think initiation is something that I think would be an interesting conversation that I, I wanted to hear hear from you about i think because i'm i'm personally somewhat conflicted like i had an initiatory experience and then i've had you know multiple throughout masonry and so having had the experience at least working through another type of even self-initiation process you have some kind of bearings um of how a lot of those rituals at least that are kind of based on the kind of masonic lodge structure function um and then, you know, the idea of, well, what are you missing out on? Um, you know, there's so much. But then my, my other thought was with every initiation, initiations promise you something before you've, or tell you you've earned something before you've actually earned it. In most cases, like now you are a sublime prince of the royal secret because you went through this one ceremony for two hours. Um, and now you're supposed to be wise, right? And it's really the contemplation and the reworking through the personal study of the ceremony that really brings that transformation of the ceremony. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on these. Uh, well, in, in, in the Golden Dawn system, we take it a step further because in the Golden Dawn, we're looking at the initiation as a magical ceremony. And I, I don't get that impression from masonry and from other things to the same extent, at least. Um, the, the talismanic treatment of the candidate is is key here but but also is the 
the awareness that what we're doing is we are through uh, through oaths and and uh, names and images and movements and evocations of spirits into the sphere of sensation of the candidate. We are enacting spirits, the action, the spiritual action of spiritual creatures into the sphere of the candidate. And then we do that in earth, air, water, and fire, and then in spirit again, and then into the solar realm. And then we cycle them through the elements again. And I, I can't even tell you what goes on in six, five, and seven, four. Well, I'm in the process of one, but, and there's different systems out there. So, you know, but at that stage, the adept does what is he's told to do, right? By his higher self, holy guardian angel. Um, mine bitch slaps me all the time when I step off course. So I have a very clear idea of what I got to do. I just don't want to do it most of the time because it's hard, but I'm, I'm doing okay, I think. <laughs> we shouldn't have gotten stoned for this. We would have sounded so much smarter. No, I think but this is perfect. Perfect. You're perfect. Um, so what's really important is that there's a magical cycle of the elements, like in the, alchem the alchemical lesser and greater circulation and the double cycle of the Ouroboros. We, we magically are enacting purification processes on the soul, on the, on the guf, nefesh, ruach, and greater neshama of the candidate in an ultimate uh, transformation of the relationship between the the lesser countenance and the greater countenance the the zaire and ari kempin right and and that's what we go through over and over alchemically magically and with and when especially when in the golden dawn we're we're opening up the elemental tablets and you do that in the cicero self-initiation book you do the evocation invocations you do the the uh the the great opening you do that also in regardies with uh, watchtower which he saw as his self-initiation ritual and those beings though all the gnomes what think about when you're in earth all you're 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 stating your magical motto and putting it into that realm the hierophant does this in the one equals ten zelator initiation or you can do this on your own and you're putting your name into that elemental kingdom of earth for a period of time and all of those little gnomes are like charging into your sphere and working on you especially as you repeatedly invoke that energy and these beings over a period of time and then have that will bring issues up that will that emphasis of those energies in your sphere will bring shit up and you have to work through it using these various techniques and that's how you get through that elemental stage and you keep going refining your your sphere as you go along and and clarifying that relationship creating a, a better habitable seat for the descent of the holy spirit or the higher self or for a clear connection with that external entity of the holy guardian angel most adepts whether they define it as separate or the same uh tend to do all of it at some point or the other um you know like my portal experience was very much a holy guardian angel 18 month period uh for me um that was very key like to the extent that the reason i stayed a virgin up till i went through that was because i read an abramelin when i was 14 that you know they would use have a virgin kid there i was like well i'm a virgin i'll just stay a virgin and i'll go through that thank you and it worked so what else can you say right um and you know then 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 my scottish girlfriend got a call and i was like yo girl guess what i just did <laughs> hooked up with my holy garden angel you know what that means sex time no <laughs> though though sort of that is sort of how it happened well <laughs> i think that's a wonderful 
I feel like now everybody's going to be like, I really got to get my holy guardian angel so I can get laid. Um, I don't, I don't think that's what we were going for. Not what I said. <laughs> that's not what I said. <laughs> if you're a virgin, maybe it helps for magical development. Who knows? I don't know. It could be a bunch of bullshit, but it was convenient for well, my own experience in I high mean, school. My experience, I mean, you have a different kind of magical reason why you're doing it within Mormonism, but right, it's the will. It, I mean, it, it really is training the will, like how much effort do you actually you know put into this thing that you want and what kind of sacrifices you know do you make and so i think there's a lot of power um in that exercising of the will yeah well and and so the repeated practice of the rituals in between this the initial initiating of the initiation in the golden dawn formula is what's key and that's one of the things i've i've really uh looked at in a, in a sort of a new way here um in this article i have coming out and then this following book which will be out soon um and it, it is a uh, it's interesting because there's there's it sort of answers the question of instead of asking how can we use magic and like the, the operations of ceremonial magic to initiate ourselves into the golden dawn tradition and rather it says how can we use the operative magic of the golden dawn initiations to cause the effects and results of that cycling through the elements towards the summum bonum and the the initiation of the solar ray in five six how can we do that well and now a word from our sponsors at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. I have a pretty good idea after the last couple of years of research about how we can do that um, independently as a form of operative magic rather, but let's not kid ourselves. It's not, the, you can't go through the golden dawn initiations unless you go through the golden dawn initiations and they do a lot of things other than just simply enact the key initiatory moment through the Enochian watchtowers, which is how that's done, but that's not done in the neophyte. So something else has to happen. And that's why I had to write a book about it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really useful because we're in these kind of like shifting times where I think, you know, there's a desire for these kind of community initiatory uh, opportunities, but they're not a reality and haven't been a reality, um, you know, consistently for a lot of people in a lot of places. And so, like, how, do, how does it become accessible and how do we do this? Um, and 
it seems to me working through it, I'm, you know, I'm working through the Cicero's book. Um, and then of course, reading a ton of other stuff. Um, and it, it feels like it, it works well. I mean, I feel like I've had, I don't know what anything else feels like, but it's, it feels like it's working. <laughs> I guess that's, that's it's like, if you do the work, it works. Uh, up until my recent re-review of it, um, I'd only heard what people had told me and, and it was largely negative success stories and abandonment. But as I've looked at it uh, again, in, you know, I'm looking at all of these things in the context of their strengths and weaknesses, which is why it is significant <laughs> that I say one of them is uh, actually dangerous, I think. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry, it's overwhelming when I think about it. <laughs> you know, some, 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 some things, some books just really boggle your mind. Um, you, know, but, you know, one thing that that does has been interesting in this process, right? I'm I'm working through, you know, trying to identify texts, right, that are reliable or or good, or how do I know what what works? And and I think one is I don't know what experience I had. I had just an experience came on me and happened to me um, and it made everything click. And after that, like stuff has really worked. Um, but having that moment, I think is really helpful in terms of deciphering what you're gonna look at. The other thing that's been really interesting for me is coming from a Masonic background is you're given, right? Key symbols, signs, words, gestures, all kinds of things to recognize people who know what they're talking about. And so it's been interesting to find, right, authors who use some of these or, or they recur or appear in, in the conversations and you go, okay, well, I got taught that that's a way to recognize someone who's an initiate or someone who's been taught or knows. Then, you know, we have this relationship even though it's crossing over systems. Um, I think especially particularly with Rosicrucian, you know, ideas um, that those are so kind of spread around, but there's certain things that it's like, okay, well, you're looking for somebody who, who knows this, then you, you know, they know. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. that's been helpful in terms of like having a Masonic background um, and like going, okay, well, I'm going to put this to the test. If you say, this is how I recognize an initiate, then I'm going to try it. And I'm going to see what, you know, they say. How's it going? <laughs> I think it's going well. I mean, um, the journey has been very strange. I think one thing that you mentioned in your book um, as well, and I'm really oversimplifying this, is um, you talk about the, the approach of knowing God, right? And then the approach of unknowing God, right? These two kind of approaches. Um, I'm obviously a big fan of Heidegger's Abkund and uh, that early German, you know, well, I'm a Germanist, yeah? Like academically, that's my thing. My, my Dr. Tim was my professor through high school and again, expert on Yates and Nietzsche from Hamburg trained. And then I went with Nicholas Goodrich Clark, the, you know, occult roots of Nazism fame for my PhD. And he's, because he's a Germanist and I, though I wanted to study Evelyn Underhill and we, you know, we had many wonderful conversations about how the fact that all of our review sessions, like, you know, super, I was like, when I was first get, when he first accepted me, I was like, so, so how will it work, um, you know, for, for meeting up and stuff? He's like, 
Well, you know, Evelyn Underhill did a lot of drawings in Tuscany. So if you're in, if you're in Belfast and, and I'm in Exeter, or he was in Wales at the time, but he moved to Exeter, um, we could just meet in Tuscany. That would make <laughs> more sense every six months or so. And I was like, because, you know, it's a research PhD, European style, right? Yeah. Like, last thing I needed was more, another, any more classes after three years of like, you know, 23 credit semesters of grad school. No way. Like, oh, yeah. fucking, I don't know if you know about the slog of the MDiv. Have you heard of, you know, it's like highly underrated. It's like three, it's 115 credit master's degree. Wow. That's you can get like three 33 credit ones with that. That's yeah. why I sometimes joke with people I did three masters because 115 credits of grad school and you pay for every penny of it. Yeah, sorry, Joe Rogan. Education is not free in Canada. I don't know why you keep saying that. It's like so not true. And insulin is the reason I have to do a podcast. Oh, to pay for that those and now i'm just fucking around but it's oh, all true all right. it's no, all true but yeah we're it's we're all good but i guess we're okay so your two your knowing of god and your unknowing of god ideas that you touch on um and that i think for me my my process was like i i knew a god right the god that i was informed and taught and given you know through organized religion and then I left that completely. I had to like abandon God and then unknow God as a complete mystery. Right? I think this, this unfoldment, this process now for me, a return to kind of the spiritual or the mystic has been this unknowing of God. And then that revealing that, right. The, the ineffable one, the all like uh, that, is an interesting process that it's like you you learn one you abandon it and then you reveal the godhead behind you know behind the god at the center of one's nothingness one encounters the infinitely real yes thomas merton yeah yeah i quote that one in the book so but and at the same time one must have chaos within to give birth to a dancing star nietzsche so like just that's why I love right. that key from David Chaim Smith, that first key. I mean, that's what it, that's. Yeah. See, you've actually, you've actually, you're the only person alive, let alone the first professor in years to read my opus. Um, but now that since you've read my opus and you read David Chaim Smith, like now you, like, doesn't our whole connection make sense? It's like, oh, oh yeah. snap. It's like, holy shit. <laughs> so yeah. next time I talk to him, which will hopefully be soon, uh, you know, he'll have hopefully checked out my thing, though he doesn't need to, like when you're when you're so on the same plane. Yeah, I mean, I think it's what's good, though, is that approaching it from so many perspectives, because one of the challenges, right, that's kind of veiling this is the inability to express it. Right. That's I mean, part of me wonders, and this is just I'm going totally like brainstorming at this point yeah. end, of the, end of the ethers. But, you yeah. know, if you're getting a name and a sigil given to you to represent something that you cannot communicate in any other way than something that only makes sense to you, right? It is, it's the closest you can get to some kind of expression of, of the ineffable in some way, right? It's like, we have to use these strange words or these strange symbols in some ways because there is no, nothing else that can contain 
that experience or even touch close to it in the regular everyday vocabulary we use. Um, but that was a tangent to try to say that the more we approach the conversation of how to have, I think, these mystical experiences, the more entryways that hopefully it, it sheds light on for different people, even though, of course, the entryway then is nothing. <laughs> there is no way in because you're already in it right now. That's the first of the 32 keys. It's all, it's all a left. Uh-huh. All Aleph. One, two, three, all the same. Yeah. That's this non-emanationism. And it's it's a mystery because it's it's abquent, it's Dasein, right? It's it's and the way we approach it is so key because we have if we approach it, if we succumb, um, it's like it's like um what how did I say in, in my book? Um the the downside. Actually, just before we talked, I highlighted that. I think she actually I posted it to Instagram. The downside is something. Anyway, I actually did highlight it and I posted that because um, there's a there's a there's a yeah. Actually, me posting something to Instagram doesn't help anyone listening on the fucking podcast. Does it? Maybe maybe it should be a paraphrase. Are you prepared to paraphrase? I can't. I can't. I can't paraphrase. Oh my god! Fuck it. Um. Anyway. So what's the downside? What is the downside? I uh, I don't I don't know. It's it well, I lost track. This is this does happen to me when I when I when I uh, smoke weed, um. But but that's okay. We'll we'll uh we'll catch it next time. What were we talking about? Uh, the ineffable. <laughs> right. right. We could just sit in silence at this point now. It's yeah. Like, we talk about the ineffable too much. But how, okay, so connecting this to self-initiation and kind of this other conversation we're having, how, how do we, <laughs> right? How do we do that? How do we facilitate that um, experience? I mean, of those ineffable experiences. Well, um, I mean, whether, you know, it's 5-MeO or regular DMT, that'll do it. Uh, heroic doses of mushrooms will do it um, before right before the podcast uh, as as discussed uh, I prepared as requested by my professor to smoke a smoke a, the blumps blunts of some shit and I blasted uh, tools Numa in my head on my my good cans so um, I prepared for the ineffable yeah and uh I mean, it's the bath, right? It's what David Heimsmith calls the bath. You know, the ineffable is the bath. It's this, this, uh, this dissolution of, of being that opens us up to new possibilities, right? You see how I literally went from David Heimsmith to Jacques Derrida and John D. Caputo in, in one sense. You ever read any uh, John Caputo? No, I, I had yeah. just... What about like Paul Ricoeur? Yeah, Caputo is great, a great, a great philosophical theological thinker um i think i can't remember he's a professor at maybe it's duke or somewhere i think it's maybe in washington um yeah northwestern anyway what about paul recur are you uh because some a lot of literary guys you're a literary yeah, professor yeah, like yeah paul recur eh 
um, any of those other sort of people that you're, uh, you're into? Because I love Paul Ricoeur. I mean, um, I love Zizek. Um, Zizek, yeah. Of Fury and um, just trying to help people blow stuff up. I mean, there's that, he has that very kind of chaotic side and he's going to take everybody on. And um, I think that's, that's really good. Um, His Netflix show, The Perverse Core of Ideology, is actually shockingly accessible. Yeah, uh, maybe it's not on Netflix anymore. But the perverse for those of you who don't, uh, who haven't tuned out of this conversation by this point, but and don't know what we're talking about, the perverse core of ideology, uh, or is it advertising? Maybe ideology is the book. It could be either um, one. Zizek either one. Like yeah, um, yeah. Check out some Slavo Zizek, and Zizek is spelled Z-I-Z-K. But a lot of I think most of my listeners are sort of familiar with this stuff. A lot of them are, I know for sure. Um, so. Well, yeah, you, a fascinating feel, guy. How do you feel that your kind of just theoretical reading that I think for a lot of folks, if you're looking, we're talking about magic on a podcast about magic, but then we're talking about philosophical theory, literary theory. How for you are they helpful for one another? Um, is there something for you that you find nurtures your magic or your spirit through that? Well, well, yes. I mean, so a huge key, a key, key to, to my understanding, besides the Robert Corrington and bit uh, understanding of, of, of metaphysics as an ecstatic naturalist um, semi, semiology that interprets the pre-categories of, of, of reality as nature and spirit and divides then nature and spirit into what, from Goethe, um, the natura naturata, natura naturans, nature, naturing, and nature natured, and this this idea of 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 ecstatic uh, self explosion within nature, which is what you know is a philosophical way of explaining uh, sort of all of reality and the fact that we don't have a sense of the base reality. And this is this is actually a, another thing I touched on here um, with with that. Um, first one of these one of the earliest quotes in it is uh or is uh, i think it's abraham joshua heschel or uh or is it uh sorry that's all right one sec ah i thought i had it I, I so tried to be prepared. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Truth, uh, no, Truth is condemned to remain a fiction precisely insofar as the innomable real eludes its grasp. Right. And this is exactly what we see. Um, God damn stone brain. Um, I think. Um, damn. I shouldn't, we should. Okay. Wait, that's so tragic um it's it's exactly what 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 um uh roger penrose is talking about when he talks about not being like to be called a materialist because we still don't know what the matter is the base the base ex code of reality is unknown yeah right so truth eludes our grasp because we don't yet even know what base physics like for example if simulation theory is real or if or whatever there, there can be a physics beyond the physics that we know yeah 
right? Well, I, and, and I'm not the, you know, neither of us are scientists. So we don't actually know if there's multi-dimensions or planes of reality, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we're human beings who experience multiple dimensions, not just through psychedelics, but through our spiritual realities, through mystical experiences. This is uh, not, um, not a subculture of human life, but actually endemic and pervasive from the beginning of human experience to present. And that's one of the things Stephen Skinner says about magic. I mean, that's why that's his approach academically to magic, which is it's quite accurate. He, the way he he shows, like, look at all of these methodologies that we've approached. None of them are honest. They're they're all just he just he he said the emperor's not got no clothes. Like it doesn't, you know. He went a step further than uh, Antoine Secret and Antoine Favre at the Sorbonne. He he uh, he he even went a step farther in some ways than than Wouter Hanegraaff has. Um, as much as Hanegraaff has codified and analyzed our understanding of new religious movements and and a vast swath of esotericism that really needed uh, the inter, you know the introductory job being done and God bless that man for doing it covering so much from Wicca to shamanism voodoo ceremonial magic indigo children God God bless that that wonderful uh, Dutch man <laughs> um, but then when you but and and then and then we have over with uh, Moshe Adele. Uh, a deep look, like crucially, a deep look in into the relationship of Abraham Abalafia with with the post structuralism and deconstruction of Derrida, and all these other um, radical '60s thinkers, right? And the connection there is is undeniable, which is why. And if you, yeah, so everyone needs to read uh, Moshe Adele's Absorbing Perfections um, if they want to really see how these basic deconstructive modes of thought have been operative within mystical theology for a very long time and it's not a it's not difficult to see how that is pervasive across the human experience so our our inability to understand and be certain to be certain that the reality as we experience is 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 no meal defies our our ability to define any kind of objective truth and hence whatsoever and therefore, the ethical imperative is even more important than ever to be levied upon the subject. And the subject must determine their ethical position somehow in a way that allows them to not commit evil. What are those evils? For that, of course, as you know, I can sit, I really embraced uh, French philosopher Alain Bedieu, his, his essay, his book, his little tiny book, The Essay of Understanding Evil. I mean, his categorizations, it's very obvious that you commit one of the three evil fallacies um, when you ethically impose your subjective truth upon another person, right? My way or the highway. This, that is what he calls the, the evil of tyranny. It's a basic ethical fallacy. So all of these establishments of personal, personal ethics and ethics being defined as subjective is essential when you don't have a, a, the, any kind of claim to a base acceptance of objective truthful reality we don't yet know what the matter is to quote roger penrose so don't call me a materialist we don't know what the fuck's up we need to chill out and open our minds and maybe reconsider the platonic metaphysics of presence well i think that's you know when we're talking about connecting with or engaging with the real or the ineffable or the you know the union with the the all uh 
then that is right. That is the thing that I think in, in your, your book, if I, if I'm on the right track, right. Is the moment when you touch through that epiclectic uh, or epiclesis, that moment where the human and the divine touch and interact and behave as uh, in a unified way. And yeah. no. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and it's a mutual dialogue. That's, that's where Hans Gerd Gadamer's understanding of understanding is so important, right? The hermeneutic process is, yeah. the, is the Ouroboros, right? And um, the acts of interpretation of understanding and application are simultaneous. So the cycle happens all at once, but it, it's a dialogical process. It goes back and forth. So the divine doesn't condition itself upon us, but is defined participation with us through our connection to it and that's where the role of the within that metaphor of epiclesis the priest comes into play because if the priest does priest doesn't do the sacrifice of the mass and say the magic words hocus pocus or sorry <clears throat> did i say i meant pocus anum corpus meum you know this is my body and um and allow through his ethical agency the transfiguration transubstantiation sorry of those elements through the epiclesis the transfiguration of spirit then the moment can't happen so it's a dialogical moment and the priest of course through anamnesis is jesus christ at the moment of the last supper and and all of these things happen in dialogue with each other to define the event of the moment but that event is defined by an act so there's agency and that is is the defining spirit act yeah well i mean i'm i'm now thinking of this to which we must be faithful in terms of if we're trying to write you your whole discussion is how do we behave ethically and the ethics would be having that right if you're doing your kabbalistic cross and stuff right right you're having that whole connection right hopefully i mean not it's not going to be every day every time but trying to work in in unison with the all and if you're doing that then you're going to be benefiting right humanity and everybody around you hopefully but that unison is not necessarily um well the unison acting with ethically within that environment still it requires as much as you can do it within uh, in a harmonious way um there there is a necessary transgression that's the other part of this there's yeah. a necessary transgression because openness requires hospitality hospitality is the transgression of the community because the community is an isolated and inherently violent you like that through one of those little so you, you, that's one of those words that that that, that the those people uh, abusing this kind of thinking are used, right? You know, violence like silence is violence. Like I don't think you've ever been smacked hard. <laughs> You're marginalizing real victims. Um, that's uh, the transgression is necessary because without the transgression, uh, well, tra spirit is transgressive essentially. It transgresses like Hermes, the divine to the human realm and back again. And, and the act of spirit and the act of, of, of the ethical configuration of the self is a transgressive act because it necessarily sets you against 
the entirety of the world around you. Your ethical establishment is not dependent on the moral structures you live in or the people or society or the world you live in, right? I mean, it would be ideal that it's harmonious with that, but in the ways in which it's not harmonious, like if it's not harmonious in a way in which you go and kill someone, you go to jail. So maybe fucked up, right? In, in, in that event, <laughs> um, in how you configured yourself. Did you configure yourself, yourself in a way, this is the Lacanian point, that is, is symbolic within the symbolic orders of relevance, or did you reconfigure yourself in an imaginary way, which is uh, indicative of, of mental illness or, or you know, de you know, departures from reality, from the social consensus, which is essential, right? We function within it, but we transform it through transgression. And that transgression is the individual ethical establishment. There's two ideas that I think come into my mind as you're describing this uh, for kind of these um, other approaches, possibly. Um, one is one aspect that I think that you mentioned was like, right, in the Rosicrucian agreements, we have the idea that you're going to blend with the people that you're with in the community you're with um and so part of that you is, think my academic book was influenced by rosicrucian nonsense come on brother oh uh, there's no fama fraternitatis in this bibliography <laughs> the uh right <laughs> oh crap and then there was something else but we can just leave I'm it never, i'm never getting a job in the university ever again am i <laughs> oh shoot maybe we shouldn't release this until i get tenure <laughs> until you get tenure you're close aren't you no, you, I, I guarantee you, no one's no one's going to see this unless you link it to them. I'll put it on my CV. <laughs> my, my channel's got so few viewers, it's not even monetizable. So don't worry yourself at all. Yeah. Though, if anyone did see this, at your, you'd probably, you know, get some some street cred. They think real real cool. They think you're super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's it's interesting the role of the individual in so to society, right? Because like if we did have if we did have an understanding of, of an uh, objective truth truth reality, then it would be easy to say this is what you must ascribe to, right? But because we don't have that, as Zizek and everyone else points out, um, we're left in in a kind of state of chaos, and. Uh, and the, the agency of the individual becomes important. And that is where all these, this craziness at like from, from, from uh, uh, Greenwood or wherever uh, the Weinstein was, uh, Greenview. It's just, I actually had friends who went there because just down the road in Washington, Greenview University, the green, the green place, something. Anyway, I usually know the name of it. The whole uh, university thing began at that Washington University near Olympia. Um, and uh, they're, they're misusing, the, those people were misusing these philosophical ideas uh, for, for gender studies, for culture studies, and to then just bully and, and, and try and get power by saying that, you know, therefore nothing means anything, and, and I can be, might live whatever truth I want, and if you have a problem with that, you're wrong. But that's that's where they're wrong. <laughs> Obviously, as everyone with two cents to rub together can tell, it's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense because the crucial thing with establishing 
the ethical subject is that it is subjective. Therefore, the last thing you can do is tell someone else how to be. That is then the definition of evil. Yeah. Well, the thing that you, you made me think of with this, right, the imposition of certain ways of being upon people in society and you know as we're talking also about practices within magic and experiences and magic is that right the dissolution of the ego and in some of that that allows you to also unify with the community um but i really also like what steiner has in his dramatization of the conversation with the guardian of the threshold is that you become liberated from the cultural temporal uh like situations of your generation basically and you are fully responsible from this point on if you choose right to take on that that commitment and then you yeah. have to work in that ethical unity because you are liberated from any kind of responsibility of the unknowing right of being you know having the veil over your eyes so to speak it's interesting it's so it's it's so cool to actually um i don't want this to sound bad to anyone but talk about what i think with someone <laughs> i know i talk with the folk, people with what i but um i do miss my academic uh life like as you uh, as you know there there is a charm and a, a beauty and a wonder to being in the university environment and being able to really get into some 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 deep thoughts um, yeah. And now, deep thoughts. Remember that Saturday Night Live sketch? <laughs> that was one of my. That was my one of my favorites when I was a kid in 1990. Like staying up late to watch it. Um, yeah. Damn. What haven't we covered? Oh man, I don't know. That's a good question. I didn't realize how long it's been, but I've got I've got all the time in the world for you, brother. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy to keep talking. I yeah, let's keep, let's keep going. So we'll see. You know, pause episode two. Take a is this the break? Do you want to take a bathroom smoke break? Oh no, I'm good. I I don't need to. I'm getting stabilized. So oh I'm, good. <laughs> yeah, but um, so maybe if we go back, just thinking of some of the original stuff. Was there any other? Are there other questions we need to ask? Points we wanted to go off on well yeah we have covered a lot i mean i'm sort of curious um i mean i mostly know don quixote uh you know from uh, the fisher king that's, uh -huh. that's that's the film that the book was based on <laughs> Um, do you have much of a, of a sense of, of what the, what the question, like what's, when it comes to the question of, is there an answer to the question of reality in that book? Like, does it, does it, cause it really does question reality. Like what is real? And I'm, I, to be honest, I'm mainly thinking of the Fisher King and, and Robin Williams, of course, may beautifully rest in peace. And what a fabulous film that is for anyone who uh, wants to read that the, the film, watch the film that the book Don Quixote was based on, <laughs> watch the Fisher King. Um, 
because at the end you realize that his reality is sort of valid right am i wrong or 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 what what what's going on there what's it say because we've talked a lot about metaphysics so this would be my my professor answer is going to be um there is no one single answer to what the book says about reality because it's the original like modern novel uh but I think what we get out of it and what maybe is most, maybe if we're talking metaphysical and we're talking, you know, the cult applications of Don Quixote, that sounds like a great paper, um, is that he, he chooses, right, to take upon himself a position in society and then behave completely according to those values that he determined for himself, right? So it, it's a self-imposed um, madness but then his way of seeing the world begins to affect those around him, right? Don Quixote is basically the sequence of, of encounters that he has as his reality clashes with an alternative perspective of reality, which is the inherent problem, I think, that we're kind of discussing uh, with your work and with modernity and postmodernity. And what comes at the end, and this is the enigma for me that I've always contemplated with Quixote, is he gives up his uh, reality, his created reality. And it's when he gives that up that he's able to die in some kind of peace. And it's this moment of giving up the self, right? And accepting the world as, as the world is, but having been able to live in a different world. So he has achieved, right, the, the journey, the return. He has lived another world. He has lived another life. He's confronted this. He's confronted the death of this persona he created. So his own mask is dropped. And now he is finally Alonso Quijano, right, the guy who is Don Quixote. And then he dies. Then he can no longer exist in reality because he no longer has himself. So... I'm not sure how to take it. I've got all these kind of like different ideas floating around in my head. And that's one of the great things about the class and the book. I love it. You know, it's, it's interesting. Fun fact, um, um, instead of studying that book in Waldorf school, what you do in grade 11 is for two, three hours a day, you have a main lesson, uh, as they call it, on, on uh, every morning on Parseval for three, four weeks. So two, three hours a day on Parseval by Wolfram von Eschenbach. Of course, you know, Steiner Schule, German stuff, rather than French. You know, in Canada, that's a defining thing up here. Um, well, Don Quixote is not French, Spanish. What the fuck am I saying? Sorry. I blame the uh, lubricants. Um, <laughs> always blame the lubricants. Kids, take it from me. Um, yeah, and... and uh, that's that's sort of a, a similar book, right? It's a similar sort of quest. You could even Don Quixote is very much a Parsival Parsival figure, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, his what he picks up is this is Spain transitioning from monarchy into uh, kind of not. I mean, they didn't get to democracy until way later, but it, the shift in terms of the economic structures of society are opening up and turning to the merchant class and capitalism. So there's the shift culturally in Spain and across Europe at the time 
um, when Don Quixote would be writing, right? And so he is part of the landed gentry. He had a bunch of money. Well, not, not he had a bunch of money, sorry. He has land, but he does not have money and he cannot work because he's uh, lower nobility. And so all he has is kind of like a little bit of land and he's seeing the, the entire kind of monarchy way of life, economic system fall apart and shift away from him. And so his answer in some ways is almost, let's make Spain great again. He's like, let's go back to the days of chivalry. Let's go back to the knights. Let's go back to doing things this way, which I mean is also a critique of the mercantile shift and the capitalism that he's making. So there's interesting things going on with why he chooses the chivalric genre of literature. Because they say in the, in the book, what happens to him is he reads so many books of chivalry that his brain dries up uh, and he thinks he's a knight. Delightful. So maybe you, we read too many books, our brains will shrivel, shrivel up and we'll think we're sorcerers. Ironically, uh, before we talked today, I took a break from all my, uh, it's been a big day, crazy stuff going on in, in the world, of course, and especially in the magical world. I took a break to listen to uh, Thomas Sowell do a whole thing on against intellectuals. Mm. Um, you know, he, he, some very interesting research, shall we, shall we say. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if we're on, on that, you know, ideas, we know we have kind of an educational system that's not benefiting everybody and doing favors to anybody and is crushing people and stifling people and making it inaccessible financially to the point where education has become like, right, the, this, this thing. And um, we also have, in terms of like the leadership, you know, we've got older folks who've been trained in older theories, older approaches, older methodologies, um, oftentimes in charge. And so then there's new methodologies that people want, but universities aren't giving them because we have stuff like tenure, <laughs> you know, where, yeah. you know, if you get your education in 1970 and then you get to keep your job, you know, for 60 years and you're still teaching 1970s to people who are way past you, then there's going to be a disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. The downside I found in grad school is there were some professors, yeah, who were a bit like that. The upside was some of those professors who I had who were in their 70s were amazing. Mm -hmm. They were so sharp, so amazing. I mean, uh, one of my, my New Testament professor died right after teaching uh, my course on Paul, and it was so intense. I mean, Greek intensive, everything intensive. And he, he's like, he literally changed Pauline studies in his lifetime. His, 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 Lloyd, Dr. Lloyd Gaston change Pauline studies and you know when you when you read his his book and he only did one because he figured that was all that was really needed to be settled he's one of the one of those guys you know mm -hmm. and uh he starts off with you know, his book starts off with I believe you know referencing an academic publication an article that made a certain point about a certain understanding of the uh grammar of righteousness of God and and whether it's you know inflexive or or whatever and he's like, we take this as an assumption of proving this thing. And then he goes from there and just advances this stuff so far along. And like he was taught back in the day, he was a student, a doctoral student, like I believe with Karl Barth, you know, and, and studying with these, these uh, you know, my, my supervisor from my 
my thesis and my my whole study was was a student of uh, Richard Niebuhr, uh, a great American ethicist. Like so, when you had these old professors, some of them were a little calcified and and uh, dangerous, honestly, and some of them were just able to transmit the most remarkable lifetime of information to you that that you can only be really grateful for. And the academic system, I think, really, it's undergoing this crazy transformation right now that we're all watching in a very public way. Um, and I tend to think that, that some of the hope might lie in, in, in online education and the, a further democratization of knowledge. Um, you know, like I've, I've watched every theological lecture put out by Yale University. And what's shocking is it's basically, after the first nine hours of lectures I listened to, I heard maybe two or three things that I hadn't heard in grad school in Vancouver, which is shows you like there's a lot of consistency to well done research here, right? And it's not actually that different between Yale and UBC. And when I met, uh, when I was, went to conferences and met some friends who did their MDivs at Harvard, they were jealous of the teachers I had at my school and said they wish they could have gone there. I'm like, that makes no sense. And they're like, it's all about the teachers. It's like, damn, that's really true. And so since anyone through the internet can access any teacher anytime, in theory, if there was the system set up, I mean, you could just teach from home to thousands of more students. And it's not that much different than if you're in a lecture hall with 200 students overcrowding it, mm -hmm. right? So there's a future there, but at the same time, physical universities aren't going to go away. And so the rethinking of this, I find very fascinating. Like there's an active rethinking going on that I'm sure you're aware of because it, it can't just there can't it can't it's not just going to like it's not like there's gonna be pitchforks and a radical revolution no this is going to be something that changes slowly hopefully we don't lose the meritocratic elements hopefully we push the meritocratic elements I mean I, I challenged my BA people say meritocracy is dead not totally like maybe the horse is lame but the bullet's not in the head yet like it still has maybe a, maybe a good doctor can save the academic system because you still need it, right? Like people say, oh, what's the point of going to university? Well, you're not going to fucking understand romantic poetry unless you study with a guy with a PhD in that stuff. And I know because I study with some of those guys and it's like, you're like, you're like, that's, you, you need to study for 30 years to be able to teach some of these things. And those, those are some of the most inspiring classes I ever got. It was my professor of literature the first year or two who can who when he said if I could go back and do it all again I'd study theology I was like yep right dropped out changed course entirely and thank god I did it was the one of the best decision I ever made other than doing the GD it was changing course from philosophy and romantic poetry to theology like so fascinating you got you got this you got the psalms you don't need fucking Chaucer <laughs> Well, and I, I don't, don't mean that. I mean, one of the interesting aspects is as you engage with that stuff, the literature from almost any moment, if there's something that you're searching for, like you can find that. Um, and so whatever kind of draws you, you can pick it up uh, in, in any you know time period that you choose to study. I think one of the saddest things is that we don't have opportunities for, you know, even anybody to know that they want to study romantic poetry seriously and in depth for the rest of their life? Like, how do you come to know that, that that's what your thing is? Um, I, I knew that when I was 12 years old. Well, 
Yeah, yeah, and you you got a great mind. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, and that's one of the things also is trusting your young self. Like I always knew I wanted to teach, and that's the only thing that drove me to do, you know, 14 years of college was I want to teach. Where do I want to teach at the university level? Okay, I got to do all this stuff to get there. Um, but that was from also from a young age. Like I didn't even know what I wanted to teach. It was just I want to teach something. No. Could you see me teaching a uh, college again? Yeah. Could you see that? You should do it. You know, there's an upside to not having finished your PhD and you're, I'm sure you're aware of that because, because universities can pay us like way less to basically do a very similar job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. They, they sort of love us. Um, one of my good buddies who, uh, before he got his PhD um, at University of Florida, you, you might've even heard of him, uh, started teaching, proposed a course while he had his master's uh, on demonology and rhetoric. And it was so enrolled in, they had to add a second day. So he had to teach four days a week to over 200 students per classroom, maybe it was 300. And every other professor in the literature department was fucking furious. They fucking were furious, man. And you, you know why. Right. Because like some of them have like, you know, some of them, you know, they're, they're teaching, you know, John Arnold's culture and anarchy or whatever. Uh, you know, they got 25 people in their seminar and this fucking M.A. kid is, uh, you know, because and they're like, well, it's just because of the title and this and the subject he's studying. And the university's like, yes, it's because he's teaching something that many, many, many people are curious about academically. And what a great angle on demonology, demonology and rhetoric. I mean, whew, right? And that Florida, uh, he ended up doing his PhD on maps, magic and maps. Okay. Imagine that. I can't remember his name right now, but anyway. I've been in the back of my mind, what I'm working on is uh, a course on spirituality and mysticism in Latin American cinema, which I want to oh, learn wow. Alejandro Hodorowsky's films. Yeah, that's what and, I was thinking. And teach tarot and right you know it's some initiatic stuff that he's got going on in his films oh wonderful uh, but that course would sell out <laughs> i think so every time i mention it people are like oh crap yeah i want to check it out you just have to create the course yeah then yeah. i'm just worried about the student who signs up not like knowing what they're in for and then we're like all right we're gonna watch holy mountain you're gonna watch this dude get like his anus washed like in a close-up um, you know, but you got to confront those challenges in your life. Anus washing. It's a thing. I mean, it's sacred. We all do it. Uh, very intimate, right? You only let, you know, your close guides wash you that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but that's the conversation I'm ready to have with them be like, well, why would this director have this close up in this movie? because he just ascended i mean in in this film right he just ascends he's confronted his higher self and he's being taken you know by his higher self to be washed and cleansed and so yeah we're going to cleanse all of you so damn damn yeah what what do you uh are you hopeful about the university world um, I mean, I have to be because yeah. in it, and so job. that's um, you know, I want to be, and I and there's challenges. I mean, it it was 
hard to get a job. I mean, you think if I get a PhD, there's going to be a job and no. Right. And so I don't know. I mean, that's itself, but I think it's become so, so much of a money-making machine. We've stripped out so much public funding for universities and education that now they are having to be for-profit institutions basically. And that's undermining a lot of what's happening because it's not about, you know, what's being taught. It's about how do we get people in seats and how do we get them, you know, giving us their money. And uh, I, I don't want education to be something that's putting people in debt. Like, I wish that, like, is there a way that I could share the stuff that I love that I've studied with people who want to know about that stuff for free? Like, that would be awesome. I also don't want to be homeless, but, you know, there is no ethical consumption. Uh, well, I think there's a chance for future abundance in online education, like, because it's not a hard stretch to imagine that if um, my, my buddy in question, it was, damn, what was his name? We, we all hung out for at East Lansing, Michigan University for the first ASE conference. There was a whole crew of us like raggle taggle guys just sort of getting along and making trouble among all the notables like Jocelyn Godwin and Nicholas Kudrick Clark you know we were just like skipping lectures skipping lectures on Swedenborg to go have a pint with like some independent Catholics from Harvard <laughs> it's like um um Christopher Larrick was one of those guys he wrote Agrippa and the Language of Angels by Brill you know that nice beautiful $300 Brill book which you can probably uh, afford on your exorbitant salary as a literature professor I was just thinking about that, that as a myth, the, the, you know, the professor living large. No, professors are, yeah, yeah, no way. Um, damn, I think my bishop, like my bishop was like getting paid 130,000 a year when I was in seminary. Like bishops are making, yeah, man. Like my, pre, my, my supervising priest at St. Augustine's got made 80, 85, 88. I, I, I said, I said, I asked him once, is it can i ask what you get paid he's like he's like oh it's it's public knowledge it's listed on the church info like yeah i was like and it's because in the anglican church you're expected to have a family and kids and raise a family and you know can't have a family without for free unfortunately um you know i don't know i don't know what this thing is about this this still is a pervasive thing i get this all the time telling people telling me uh that teachers shouldn't get paid it's like well how do we live yeah like, that's like and it te- teachers nurses there's all these people in our society that are, you know um if people, if people would bring me like burritos or tacos or like barley or something because i told them stories like multiple times a week i'd be down for it sure yeah just feed me grapes and uh care for my shisha and dmt pipe and i'll sit around a pool on a chaise lounge disposing philosophy but but no as far as i can tell you have to really hustle to uh educate in this world education's essential it's very important and very useful but it's also castigated and now we have uh the education systems messing with education on their base level i mean the the stuff going on in in public and parochial schools is beyond words right it's interesting because so you you were through the Waldorf system yeah yeah I was homeschooled 
I went to two years of public school before college. And so I think it's interesting having this kind of separated education um, that was always skeptical of the larger, you know, systems. Uh, I don't know if that was also part of Waldorf's, you know, kind of like looking out and going, we're not part of that system. That, that's something else going on. You, know, you should be skeptical of it. Yeah. Um, one of my friends who, whose dad incidentally owned Banyan Books, the big occult bookstore in Canada here in Vancouver, he referred to it once as, as, as social retardation. He's like, yeah, we're all sort of socially retarded. Um, it's the Waller School of Social Retardation, which, you know, a bunch of them graduated before me, went out into the world and were like, oh, oh, um, there's a few skills we don't have. And that is definitely true. That can incur, occur in closed environments. But the exceptional accomplishments of a lot of the, the majority of the people in the classes counterbalances that in a way that, that forced the Canadian government when they reviewed our school's curriculum to say, please don't change a thing. Mm. They're like, they're like, we can't give you money, any more money, but please do not change your curriculum. Cause these people, the, the reviewers were, they saw our statistics and our test scores. Um, even though like normally that wasn't a thing, but they did it a couple of times just to see where we were at. And they're like, yeah, your system doesn't make sense for these, how you're achieving these numbers, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't make sense the spiritual methodology of education and pedagogy that's that's running the system doesn't like it makes no sense why kids who don't aren't allowed to read till they're nine or ten read better when they graduate than universally any other education system for children in the world why is that that doesn't make any sense except steiner had a theory that the emotional aura needed to develop properly and if you start reading when you're too young the, that forces an early development of the mental aura, which inhibits the imaginative faculty and the child's ability to develop emotionally. And that impacts the whole being. And that's his theory. It's fucking, fucking insane from an academic point of view, right? But they, at the same time, the, universe, the, the government officials couldn't deny the test results. So they're like, we can't approve of this, but don't change it. And uh, that's how sort of Walder schools are. You know, there's a good, there's a bit of good and bit, bit of bad. They also don't admit kids sometimes in grade one if they think their soul's not fully incarnated. And they test that by a drawing of a tree, a family, and a house and a son. Wow. Yeah. My best friend didn't get into Walder because his people were floating off the ground and they considered that his soul hadn't fully incarnated and he could benefit from public school education. From them where uh, you know they saw him as disabled <laughs> just like kids who read naturally from a young age are seen as uh struggling with a deficit yeah <laughs> like the, they'll be challenged but they'll still they'll be probably be okay but you know it'll be harder for them you know given that they're just naturally reading at age five or six which is so like i know people listening are gonna be like that's wrong. That can't be, that can't be right. And maybe it can't be, but by the time we test out in grade 12, uh, proofs in the pudding. It all works out. Yeah. No, a lot of stoners in the Waller school system. Annie Lennox, Anna Paquin, the Eurythmics are named after Eurythmy, 
which is, in my opinion, weightlifting for the aura, that dance form that exists in Steiner School. And, 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 and it's very different. It's nothing like homeschooling, really, because you're around other kids. You still have the social element. In fact, you have a concentrated class of a very small number of people, like usually 20 max, and they're all together mostly from, for 12 years, every class in the same room. So you, you learn you have to get along with people that you don't really get along with. And that changes the way you look at people. You can't just go off to your niche, to your little clique, because there are no, there's not enough people for cliques. That's yeah, it. Yeah. You got what you got. The whole high school has 72 kids maximum. It was, it was an interesting experience, man. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, it is what it is. Yeah. And you, you know, work from there off of the basis that you, you have. I mean, uh, there was times I hated it. Um, you know, when my parents were going through a divorce when I was nine, 10, 11, and my dad had an abusive wife and it was rough. You know, I went all goth, started reading Donald Michael Craig and formed a Wiccan coven on the side and uh, played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. Do you do any role playing? No, you know, I, I never did because I didn't have any friends except for uh, <laughs> friends because I was homeschooled. So my, comic my, books. My only socialization was, uh, you know, other Mormon kids. And so, no, uh, I was the bad kid because I was playing Magic the Gathering and that was like creepy enough for so my Mormon friend. This will, if you know Magic, this will explain a lot of how I managed to get through my teenagers. By the time I was 15, when I joined the Golden Dawn, I had uh, a full sheet of nine black lotuses. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> I had complete unlimited set, Arabian Nights set, multiple complete sets of the Dark Legends, oh. Moxes up the wazoo, yeah. So, you know, you can sell one black lotus for $40,000. So by the time I was 20, I had no more magic cards, wow. except for a couple black lotuses left that I left with my dad for safekeeping in case I ever got into trouble. And then his wife sold them and built their house. Oh, that happened in 2014. I've never said that publicly before, but that'll do it. I called the cops and haven't seen my family since. Oh, no, man. I'm sorry. Hey, man, it came out naturally. That's how that's what that happened. That's how that happened. Well, you know, it's it's like it was close to $100,000. Just they just took <laughs> like, what do you what do you want me to say? I'm not going to fucking take it on the chin. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> plus she's an abusive woman so you know fuck her <laughs> i hope no professors watch this but you know at the same time they might be like what are those two academics doing talking like regular people we're like we are sorry we will revert footnote yeah <laughs> we need some more footnotes in here stat uh what do you think of the new development of academics on YouTube posting academic lectures like you got religion for breakfast? He's a cool dude. Justin Sledge, Dr. Angela Puka. Are you a fan of any of them in particular or any other people I might not have heard of? Oh, you know, I wish I had more time to watch stuff. <laughs> I just, I, I haven't been like podcasts work a lot for me. I drive a bunch. Um, yep. And so I get to listen to a lot, but in terms of like what's going on, is I think it's it's like wonderful in the sense that I am assuming that with their viewership they're getting paid more for their intellectual work and their teaching work 
then they'd probably be getting paid, you know, in, a, in an, an academic position in some circumstances. Now that all depends on all the other, you know, YouTube becoming a, a YouTube star stuff. But I think at the end of the day, putting knowledge out is the most important thing that you can do, right? Is sharing knowledge and sharing your learning. That's an obligation. And so finding ways to do that, I think are super important in, in taking it outside of the university. Yeah, I, I, that was my initial thought when I started this podcast and just, it was started as you know, not with interviews, but as commentaries on academic papers from academia.edu, right? I would just find academic papers that I hadn't read yet in my field. And there's a lot, I, like I still haven't even begun to really dive into Elliot Wolfson. And I, and, you know, near, nor, nor completed my studies, my, you know, Moshe Adele, like I'm going to, I'm going to be reading him hardcore along with David Heimsmith and all these other Kabbalistic scholars and practitioners for the, you know, the rest of my life. But then there's Elliot Wolfson and, and all these other uh, amazing researchers, Alison Kudera, Claire Fanger, um, uh, the, the list goes on. Um, I want to really, really ne read next. I, I want my list is uh, um, Arguing with Angels. You heard of that one? Arguing yeah. with, it's, it's a new academic study out of University of Amsterdam's dude. Uh, it's not Georgi Zunia. It's, uh, oh, the other one. Anyway, it's a really new, interesting new approach to John D and, and that stuff. But who are, who are, who are, who are some of the, the academics in the esotericism branch that you've, that you've looked at? Do you know Arthur Bruce-Lewis? No, you know, in terms of academic work in, in the esoteric realm, like I have not. Oh, wow. Much with that. I mean, You're I have, in for a treat. I've got a couple books and, you know, I think what, what was interesting is, Growing up, I always had an, an interest in this part of this is from Mormon mythology. Um, part of it is when I was a kid, I was bored, homeschooled, and I read the dictionary. And when I read the word alchemy, I was like, what is this? I got to know more. And so, you know, went down those kind of pathways. But I spent a lot of time in my academic mind doing academic work. Um, and when it comes to the esoteric, it's interesting for me. As it, turn, as it is a practice and it is a, an experience and a communion, um, right? And epiclesis, hopefully when we're at our best, um, I haven't worked on a lot of academic uh, occult writing um, just because almost, cool. it, it's like a reprieve from the academic. Uh, yeah, some, the know. practice is, is a different thing. And it's so you got these practitioners listening to the academics, but then the uh, something that never occurred to me was some academics might start listening to the practitioners. <laughs> well, you know? I mean, I think that's, you know, interesting. What stuff. if it happens both ways dialogically? What yeah. if the people teaching the practitioners updated knowledge start listening to the practitioners insights on, I don't know, spirituality, right relationship with God? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, you know, in, uh, in thinking of teaching this course on, you know, on uh, spirituality and mysticism in Latin American cinema, part of the question is when you go to present your credentials for why you're teaching this class, is it because I have a PhD in Latin American literatures and cultures, 
or is it because I've done this occult esoteric work and I, you know, from these like underground oral traditions and that's, that's the credentials that I want to show up and teach from. That's an interesting place. I mean, that's been a problem with academia and, and, you know, oral traditions broadly, but, you know, occult traditions specifically. Yeah. Um, I couldn't let you go without touching on aliens. Okay. You ever, you ever seen a UFO? You know, I have, I can't say that, that I haven't, but all, I was a kid. Uh, wow. You we, actually have an experience. We're somewhere around San Antonio. It's super minor, but, um, you know, just more than I have. This was before like phones and iPads. So you're just bored in the car at night. So I'm just staring out the window. Um, and there were like three, um, three dots of light in a triangle formation standing like still in the air. And then they just did like a loop and we're gone. And that sounds accurate. Like, what do you think that awesome. was? What do you think they are? I don't know. Are they dimension things from other dimensions? Cause they just phase out in plain sight, right? We've seen them phase out in plain sight. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many potential ways that technology and transportation and energy can be used that we can't fathom from yeah. where we're at that all kinds of things can be happening and just like, <laughs> we're not going to know why. I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, I know there's some kind of, if you get deep down in a rabbit hole, you know, times that like ceremonial magic is just contacting alien, you know, aliens, if you're talking alien in terms of the other, right. Uh, you know, out there by doing these practices at the, you know, astral etheric or, or other levels. Um, and you're getting an, somebody's attention and they're going to say, Oh, you've figured out how to talk to us and we're going to talk. Yeah. Yeah. This guy, I know, um, they, they do this really intense form of, of DMT research. And what they do is I believe it's monoxide inhibitors, but I might be getting that wrong. They smoke before the pure DMT. And so that actually does this thing. I had never heard of anyone doing until recently that turns the 15 minute DMT experience, which obviously I probably can't ask whether you've had or not, um, you're being in the States and whatnot. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's legal up here, but they turn the 15 minute experience into an eight hour experience and time goes differently for them. So they'll experience entire lifetimes in other places. And sometimes he said, he said this one time he showed up in this other place. It was a lot like earth and the scientists were there. There were scientists there and, he was like full physical manifestation. He was gone eight hours He's out of his body, just gone. He forgot he existed on it here. And there were scientists there saying, oh my God, you actually showed up. We actually were, you're actually here. Lived a whole life in that world. Then eight hours later, back in his body, freaking out bodies. in, of course, you know, shaking from being in that state. So like people are doing that and they're, they're going back to the same places by playing frequencies, single frequencies in their head, they can go back to the same place with your ear, earbuds and playing a single free. Isn't it like, that's crazy. And you don't see, that's not being looked at at all in the academic community, is it? Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I hope that, that it is. I know that there's right. What is it? The, um, the God Perhaps. molecule. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. 
you know, that research that was done with DMT, but that's, you know, been a minute since they did that. Um, but, you know, I think that that's, right, that's the uh, Maya, right? That's the illusion is that like, you can pull that off at some point and you can, you can have some other, uh, you know, reality. And so that, I mean, that's empowering in the sense of, I think, a mystical experience as well is that that becomes shown to you or becomes open. Is that like, there's other reality that could happen and you could go to and you could do, um, but then your job is here, your time is here. You know, these are the times that your work is in. Yeah, it'll be an interesting life we have, eh, uh, to see what happens with all, all this alien stuff. I mean, you know, wars and economic collapse, been there, done that. The alien thing is new. This is the yeah. first time that the government's like, yeah, we don't know what's going on. And it's like, fucking finally, and who knows, we might find out nothing else in our lifetime, but we might find out more. We're definitely going to find out more, I think, about the entheogenic realms and studies and more about like what's really going on. Because psychology sort of hit a wall, right? It seems like psychology hit a wall um, at a certain point. And I think this might be part of the way past it. That with, of course, the fusion of all the physical sciences, cognitive science that can study it if, if you know, the governments allow us to. And if they don't, well, China will do it. And you know, maybe we'll just all live under China totalitarian regime, but also have DMT hyperspace research. Probably not. Probably not. We'll probably all just be working at Amazon to fund the next fleet of penis rockets. Uh, well, I mean, we're living in a weird world where you have like the guy from Blink-182, you know, leaking government UFO videos and then the government being like, yeah, they're real. It's just like, what kind of... Cool. What did I think as a teenager that like, oh yeah, this is going to be my future. <laughs> hey man, you know, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe rock and roll will save us again. We, we need all we can get. Uh, There's a great book I'm reading called uh, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. Oh yeah. Um, I mean and. I, I want to have that guy on the on the podcast. I went to his Twitter profile and I was like, you know, just because he wrote this book doesn't mean I'm going to be into him. And his entire Twitter is all Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Heck yeah. Oh my God. I was like, yeah, we'll we'll get along just fine. Just like Justin Sledge, who I'm reading just Justin Sledge's master's degree, which believe it or not, is is like very is semiotics. He applies semiotics to John D. Uh, in a similar way that Christopher uh, Larrick, uh, Doctor Christopher Larrick, applied it to uh, Agrippa. And, well, I, and I think we need those because we're 21st century minds trying to engage with you know material that's older, and we need also just linguistic tools, vocabulary through which to engage with the material and how it's functioning. I mean, that's where also theory comes in handy is, you know, we can start to look at it and, and say, this is what's happening. This is what's going on with this material so that, yeah. you know, there's a, a common, you know, tongue to speak across. 
Yeah, just uh, for those listening, because we've said the word semiotics a lot. I know it's a fancy dinner party, one of them $5 words. Um, the Welsh philosopher uh, Daniel Chandler has a great introductory book called uh, probably Semiotics for Beginners or something like that, J Daniel Chandler. So yeah, uh, it's a tough subject. It's, it's literally uh, the newest academic discipline that is based pretty much on interdisciplinary studies. So most people who get into semiotics already did a PhD in something else, right? And then branched out in an interdisciplinary way and then methodologically choosing semiotics as an approach. But as a field in itself, it is intense beyond words. And the two major theorists, of course, Cicero and Peirce, um, it's spelled Pierce, but it's pronounced Peirce, um, the American philosopher, we're, we're united in Umberto Eco and we all love Name of the Rose, right? So there you go, folks. Uh, just in retrospect, after we've had this intense, fabulous conversation, I want people to know that there's an entryway to some of this stuff you know, I started in at it when I was 13 and damn, I still feel like I don't know much, but I, it's a life, lifelong love, love affair for me is, is a interpretation theory. Yeah. Hermeneutics. Well, I think that, you know, some of the skills and, and knowledge you gain in structures through the study of the esoteric, I mean, people are here to hear, you know, for esoteric topics, but People are here for fun conversations, brother. I promise. <laughs> that knowledge and stuff also shifts over to being able to comprehend what's going on with, you know, the semioticians and, and signs and studying linguistics. Because at the end of the day, we're vibrating words. We're, you know, doing chants and calls. And it's a linguistics and what's the exercise of that and what's the function of it. And, uh, I think some of it's like coming in from the experiential side. If you've been doing the work and you come in and you start picking up stuff about semiotics or, you know, reading Derrida, it's, it's a challenge because it's just the, the, you know, there's jargon in there, academic jargon, but yeah, the yeah. ideas are things that you're encountering in an experiential ritual, magical context. Um, and they're just trying to use other words to explain what's going on. I feel like yeah. everybody's kind of talking about the same thing in some way, but it's the thing you can't talk about. It's the ineffable. So if no one can actually say what the heck they're talking about, well, we've got to just talk around it from a lot of different angles. And yeah. that's where I am. That's what exactly why I'm really glad that I departed from philosophy and, and literature into theology, because there actually is a field that does talk about it. And that is mystical theology it's an academic field, right? The professors who study mystical theology, like Kevin Hart, um, I think he's an Australian guy, um, not the Kevin Hart from <laughs> Netflix in Hollywood, um, but it's the same name, same spelling. His books like Trespass of the Sign and, and, or, and stuff like that. Also works like Dorothea Zola's Mysticism and Resistance, like, you know, which is basically a mystical theological exploration of the same, uh, crisis demonstrated by a book like Elie Wiesel's Night. Um, if you've ever read, yeah, yeah, that dark Holocaust literature and stuff, it's super intense. Um, but there, it touches on the basis that we're talking about, the, the configuration of the metaphysical subject, the, which you, know, you actually see demonstrated in real life terms in the Holocaust. You see the very question of what it is to be 
in that event and how that reconfigures the world globally after the second world war is not that different to the simsum of the kabbalah and the explosion of the sefirot and into the shells and then the recon the healing process through tikkun you see that emulated in the world in the 20th century and it's the same process so we're all talking like you said about the same stuff different terminology different methodologies that's and that's all great it's all got its place i mean uh, i'm a, another thing i touched on in my book that you have is of course something we haven't touched on yet but it goes to explain why we decided to do this under the influence, which we made a conscious decision. I, every time I talk to a PhD, because I, I almost got mine so close, I always feel like I'm a thesis defense, you know, so I was nervous. <laughs> um, you know, we are, we are simply trying to express, um, damn, I sort of lost it. That's, that's life. The ineffable. It's the ineffable. <laughs> uh, but I had a really similar word. No, it I mean, I think it's it's. On the one hand, I'll tell I'll tell this anecdote, which I probably also shouldn't. But when I was teaching Derrida, uh, difference in this class, and and students were struggling. Like, how cool is it that the cover of the book, de la grammatologie, the grammatology is is a picture of Tahuti thought yeah the cover of his book main book is a picture of thought because his main issue is logos yeah right is is the problem of logos you know i told him uh and i think i guess this is this is true for me i don't know if it's true for everybody else but i i said if you want to really understand derrida you need to go home smoke some weed and read it again and just go with the flow just like follow this text and um engage it and you mentioning that reminds me of what i forgot continue go ahead oh i was just saying like that's the playfulness and you mentioned play in your text and yeah. um, and i think that's also a lot of you know what we're doing in our minds with with magic as well and meditation is getting to play right it is breaking the reality it is creating something else um, so I think we also need that aspect of the play. And so that might be play. an academic conversation while under the influence is also a form of yes. intellectual play and, and, <laughs> play and life play. You remind me, yeah. So the piece that I was missing uh, that I was saying that I mentioned in the book is, is, the, is the idea of jouissance. Mm -hmm. And the idea of jouissance is something um, that Foucault addresses. I mean, all these undergrads running around saying Foucault power anti-racism blah blah it's like a bunch of fucking nonsense right like they're just like they didn't read the books none of them none of them read de la grammatologie none of them read the history of sexuality none of them read those things they just listened to a few like uh, professors that i don't know how they became, you know you know we i don't want to get into what's going on because it might but you, we all know what's going on and Jouissance is an idea that was then taken up also by Robert Corrington in his approach to Natura Naturata and Natura Naturans and the, 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 pre, the pre categories of spirit and nature and, and looked at that the, the self ecstatic 
overflowing of of sort of of signs impacting within signs, um, which is the, you know unlimited semiosis from Persian semiotics is very interesting in relationship to say scrying and pathworking, Buddhist mindfulness meditation, all these things, right? Like if you want a, an academic discipline that will allow you to study these uh, phenomena of mystical theology, which mystical theology approaches in theological and philosophical terms, but which semiotics is able to look at in linguistic and cognitive science terms, um, and, in, and really fundamentally in hermeneutic terms. I mean, and it always, in my opinion, for me, I always like to bring it back to Gadamer because I think Gadamer is a major piece that we are missing, right? This idea of, 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 of romantic Schleiermacherian uh, uh, interpretations of understanding as the union of two souls on a higher level. Fuck no. That's like maybe Gnostically you connect with God in your true higher self, but I can, you know, in, on a higher plane, and that's how you fully understand who you are and your role in this world. But that's why I take that into a realm of the, sub, the subjective determinism of the ethical self in relationship to nature. It's a solo subjective ethical determinism, but that, that does not um, usurp other people's reality. It can't usurp other people's reality. So Schleiermacher in the 17th century, I believe it was, was wrong when he said that all understanding is a union of two souls on a higher plane. No, it took till the 50s and 60s that Gadamer, a student of Heidegger, was able to come forward and say, look, it is, it is a fusion of horizons. You, the horizon of your understanding and the horizon of my understanding must fuse together for us to have understanding. And that fusion occurs through the sharing of common meanings. So as soon as you eradicate common meanings, i.e. what words mean, what things are, you slip into almost unredeemable relativism. Anything, any, and that's where that's where that hippie slogan goes bad. You know, it's all relative, man. Well, no, not not really. Sorry, it's not all relative. It is, especially when you're on acid, from a certain point of view. Like you know, there the the chessboard is bottomless, but mm -hmm. categories still exist. You know, reality still exists. We don't know what the substance is that we call the material, you know, the prima materia. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the prima materia is. We actually don't know. We call it vibration, energy, matter, uh, quantum particles, spirit, energy. Uh, you name it. I don't know what Mormons call it. The Holy Spirit. Well, you yeah, know, but, well, but, but, I mean, but we don't know the, what it is. The impulse to exist, right? Whatever that is. The being, right? The why is the being, the, the being of the being. Yeah, so the, so the joyful expression of reality exploding beyond itself is the jouissance. The, that's, this, is how, this is how nature is natured. Mm -hmm. Jouissance. That's the point. Nature... Yeah is natured by by jouissance through an ecstatic expression of being that seeks after the ever retreating abgrund of itself or or lacan's objet petit a like the more you always want the more yeah. but you define what that more is and you're by your own ethical determination what is the event that defines you 
that makes you you. And this is where initiation is so key. This is where initi initiation unites the process of magic with the reality of mysticism and well, combines those two things together. And learning how to bring them back together when separated. I mean, it's the reforming of the dispersion, right? And it's those steps and, you know, learning to... Dissolve it coagula. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to do your mercury, sulfur, and salt processes. But, Amen. Uh, Brother, dude, you, should, I, you should join my online, my, my magic club uh, one week as a guest for a, for a little cyber ritual. Anytime. Do some magic with us. <laughs> You'd probably dig it. Yeah, I mean, I would love to. Um, I was going to think this is, this is just uh, a, a, an idea that illustrates, I think, that uh, joy, that explosion of joy in the face of the challenge of, of life. And this is from Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain. But they're about to reach the summit of the Holy Mountain where the masters are, right? This is where they're going to learn the secret of immortality. And they're about to climb up and they're on the side. And then one of the, you know, the nine who are being initiated says, I can't go any further. It's too hard, right? This journey is too hard. <laughs> and of course, it seems absurd. And I love Hodorowsky because he does this. He goes, well... They tell they tell this woman, rub your clitoris on the mountain. And it seems like very superficial, but it's also like when life is so challenging and so hard, the only thing that you can do is turn to that joissance, that joy, that pleasure in the world. I mean, we have a world of material reality that is hard and terrible, but sometimes you also have to turn and just turn to the joy and rub the mountain. Yeah. I had a Slovakian friend once when I was writing my master's and he worked at this cafe called Artigiano in Vancouver. And it turned out one day he saw me reading Zizek and, and uh, we sat down, it turned out he was a big fan. And this is a guy who had survived like the shit in Slovakia or Slovenia. He was Slovenian, right? He was from near Ljubljana uh, where Zizek teaches, I believe. But, you know, he was one of these kids who'd like, you know, seen his best friends shot down in the street on his way home from school. Like, Dave, they, you know, damn, was, this was like 2003 when I was friends with this guy. And, uh, and we were, I was, he saw me reading Zizek. We talked about Zizek and, and I got to some sections that shocked me. This was some early days for me with Zizek, my first two, three years in reading him. And, uh, and I was like, damn, he's like talking a lot about orgasms. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't know what to make of that. He's, my buddy turns out to me, he's a bit older. He's like, hey, man. Zizek is all sex. And I was like, I didn't know what he meant. But uh, as I kept reading, eventually I came to this understanding of the philosophical jouissance, which, which really is a huge part of this Abraxas IAO formula, um, especially the initial stage, which probably doesn't get enough credit these days. The Isis stage, the, the fecundity, right? The goddess, the new life, Everyone wants to be the uh, catastrophic Apophis and the torn down, broken death god dealing with demons and rugged transformation of all your worst qualities in the Klepot. And that's fine. And then the other people all want to be spiritual masters dwelling ever in the lands of Osiris, ruling over their subjects as gurus and, and, and know-it-alls and, and masters, right? Which is all well and good. But 
what about the ISIS stage? So what about the stage of the neophyte? Because that is the secret to the final stage. The secret to the Hierophant is that the Hierophant always has the mentality of the neophyte. He is the neophyte, because if he's not, he can't initiate the neophyte, right? And that is that jouissance of that ISIS stage, of that fecundity. It's got the, the secret to continuing the whole cycle and starting it over again once you've done IAO is jouissance, is joy, is, is the backhand glass of wine, is, is the, the, the naked running across the field and the screams from the mountaintop, like ecstatic fucking human naturalism. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you come back... That's what this I'm is not... about. That's what this book's about. And when you... here's, a, here's a picture of me when I started writing it two, two years before I finished that book. That's in uh, right outside Dublin in, on the Hill of Terra. That looks magical, yeah. It's the same cloak I wear all the time on these videos. I've had it since 2001. Hey, man. That's got some power. Take care of your magical tools. Yeah. This has been so fucking awesome, bro. Like, <laughs> so awesome. Um, mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed it. So I, I appreciate you. Uh, I wish I could come to your one of your Don Quixote classes. Well, let we'll have to get together sometime and do all kinds of classes and all kinds of stuff. So, well, we have big plans. Everyone I know has big plans. After everything we've been through, it's like we just sort of want to put on as much shit as we can, like international events, international conferences, ceremonies, retreats, initiations. We all know the places to go, the people to connect with and uh and the audience is larger than ever who want to really dig deep on this stuff and figure out what our lives are about and at a time when people are traveling hyperspace in, through dmt for eight hours to the same place and uh aliens are real or whatever is happening and uh you know it, how can we not explore this stuff and take it seriously magic's being understood better than ever from the efforts of people like peterson and skinner and even the non-practitioners like the the new players on the scene dr sledge dr puka um how, how adorable are they yeah like sledge with his super dry humor like his dad humor and then puka with her uh the 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 melodrama of uh, i don't know if you've seen her videos but and oh the academic fun she's italian <laughs> right so like and thank you for the academic fun it's like academia is fun damn you know let me go read another essay jesus christ okay. there, I it's mean, a there gift to our community yeah i mean we need we need all of that um and that's the thing that i think is gonna keep you know, everybody's looking for different things, I think, coming coming in, like why people step into the occult um, or esoteric or, you know, magic, whatever the tradition is. But, um, you know, I feel it's that um, lowering down the, the rope or the hand and, um, you know, bringing people in. And that could be through academic, you know, approach. That could be through, you know, totally you know, magical approach, but it, helping people find the door. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to talk with you more. Uh, 
you know, offline as well about your experiences with the Cicero stuff. And I'll let you know what I'm, what I'm doing and what me and my people are working on, because it's, it's not a secret. It's just, uh, it's, uh, it, most of what a lot of us are doing, like, especially with the trouble, like, you know, the troubles in the magical orders, you know, this, one of the largest GD orders just had a huge schism. Actually that, that, that my one, when I looked away by my phone, that was one of the chiefs of that new schism, one of the orders, you know, they're dealing with the schism and it's affecting all these people. And one of them just called like, and earlier, another one of them just called and they're on opposite sides of the fence. And I don't know what to say, um, but I, I want to help the people I know, because a lot of people have joined these orders on my recommend. And, and while these, while these, these, these challenges are occurring, there's an opportunity for us to reinterpret the a culture in a way that might be more inclusive, though I don't, I don't like that for somehow that word feels icky these days. I don't know why. Don't ask me why is the word, but you know, more. Um, yeah, well, the word is inclusive, more inclusive to to the different people who want to practice and and learn and develop these technologies in their own lives, right? Because that's what they are, and and if if the orders don't want to do a good job of that. Well, there's lots of room for uh, academics like you and and failed academics like me to to create conferences and retreats and and events like there's there's no limitations, actually. Right. Like this is where this is where Crowley's right. This is where he's right. Like, why can't you do that? Oh, because of this and that and, the, and, the, and it's like that. None of that's nothing you said is true. Crowley would probably have said. Like he'd laugh. I, I'm sure he'd laugh. And he'd be right to laugh. We impose these limitations on ourselves. We prescribe these closures and, uh, that, that only, and, and closures always limit one thing more than anything else. And that is spirit, right? Yeah. So hopefully we can do like lots of cool retreats and conferences that mix uh, academics and, uh, and occult practitioners and just whoever's interested in in any of it anyway yeah. yeah now i guess maybe in in wrapping up because i gotta go to the doctor in the morning i guess yeah this has been beyond <laughs> epic brother but beyond epic i can always talk for way too long um especially when i have help but the the idea as you're talking about like the schisms and the openings i mean at one time right something being cleaved open is an opening, um, but then trying to approach it from that unifying force of the all, I guess. That's, that's tough stuff to do in everyday life with other people. Before we go, yeah, that is, um, but we'll do stuff. Things are happening. Things are going to happen. We're going to do some cool stuff in Prague for sure, um, come hell or high water and Ireland. Um, hopefully you, you join us for some of that stuff. Um, and yeah, I'm very curious uh, with, I'm very curious since I'm not in the order world, I'm not actually, you know, affiliated to any groups. I, I, I've spent my time with independence and so self-initiates, which is, is not my thing. Like I, I failed at my attempts to do that when I was young, but now uh, applying the skills I learned academically back into the magical world reflexively, I've discovered that there's some things I missed and maybe, and that's opened me up to some new methodologies that are proving very effective and that's not to be ignored um especially since as much as 
as well, so many are fleshing out the grimoire world and, you know, really understanding how to achieve uh, increasingly effective physical initiations and evocational magic as the transformation of invocational and initiatory magic has, has, has been sort of left to flounder a bit. And, and there's a lot of room for us to, to increase, I think, our understanding of that um, simply by eradicating some of the strictures and dogmas that we've been uh, constrained by coming out of the Masonic world through the structuralist movement and, and deconstruction and, and postmodern philosophy has really had not actually that much impact on the occult world yet, as you probably have heard said, like, takes about 50 years for academic thinking to filter out to the mainstream, which is why the deconstruction uh, relativism of, of, of the, the 60s is only just only in 2010 started to impact pop culture. It like literally happened exactly as every professor knew I knew said it would happen. It's like they they're like all Nostradamuses. They called it. The problems with uh, all of this stuff from, you know, which really it all stems from a form of anti-intellectualism, um, unfortunately, right? Just a, uh, we've talked about that enough, but um, as we rethink things, yeah, we can definitely move forward. The question I want to ask you before we go is, um, do you think, there's a personal question, because I, I, I really do... Uh, Think there's some wisdom there's always wisdom to be gained from people who've gone through the academic process like more than 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 i have um do you think that it's possible that i could have in some in some ways lost credibility had i finished my phd this is a thought that's haunted me from now and now and again in my mind oh well i mean there's always so much question about the way that stuff plays out, I think uh, that just because you get a piece of paper doesn't mean you know what you're doing and doesn't mean you're gonna do a good job communicating it. And it doesn't mean you're gonna get a job anywhere that will allow you to communicate it. And we've, we've so, all read dissertations that make us groan. Yeah, and I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I think being a teacher and being someone that that shares and has knowledge becomes self-evident, you know, like reading your book. I, I know what level you're you're working at in terms of the academic moves and the the processes you're you're doing and the, the level of work you're doing. So like a piece of paper, I don't think at the end of the day. Um, changes your knowledge and your ability to share knowledge in any way. You know, there, it was, there was a key moment actually. And, and most people, uh, I can't even, I couldn't talk about this with because they would just think they would take it the wrong way. But when I finished it, um, I handed it to my supervisor, Dr. Sally McFaig, and she's a brilliant woman, first female Dean of a university ever in, in North America and a Yale alum, her books, metaphorical theology, uh, life abundant, uh, just amazing woman. She just died last year and fuck man, what a human being. Um, she actually told me to not submit it for my masters, to withhold it, wait six months, add 50 pages and resubmit it just for my doctorate. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. fucking crazy. I mean, I, 
And I didn't because I was signed up to do a dissertation on Evelyn Underhill with Nicholas Goodrick Clark, right? And I wanted that experience. And she's like, okay. She was very disappointed I wouldn't take her offer to go to Yale. And that she also thought that I was wasting that book on a master's thesis when, you know, like that whole book wow. of, my, of my 115 credits counted for three credits. I mean, this is definitely, you know, dissertation. You have it? Can you hold it up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> I need a picture. Oh, yeah. Perfect. No, no. Cover my awesome. name. That's good. Yeah. That's so flattery. <laughs> but no, I mean, it like I'm reading, I'm reading it and I'm not as deep into the philosophy background as you are. And like, it's on the, it's like, I'm getting it, but it's on the cusp of what I can gather. I, there was only, I only, the University of British Columbia only had two professors read it because they couldn't find a third able to. Yeah. And that, that wasn't meant as a, uh, that they weren't saying, as you know, they weren't saying because you're writing too weird shit. It was because they didn't have another professor competent in that field of knowledge. It's a, and it wasn't that, it's not that I was actually, the book's not in a rarefied field of knowledge. It's a very popular field of knowledge, in fact. And it's really, really, I can't even tell you how cool it is 15 years after writing the thing to talk to a professor about it. Um, you know, and I spent a lot of the last years uh, challenging it. Like I didn't put it out right away publicly on Amazon like I did last year or the other year um, because I wasn't sure if I was right. I wasn't sure if I was right. And it took me about 12, 13 years to, of, of living and challenging and touching base with it as a thesis before I edited it and put it out as a book and was like, no, I think this is right and more relevant now than ever, than ever. Like, honestly, when I wrote it in 2003 to 2005, I don't think it, it, it didn't make sense. To, like, it wasn't relevant to the current conversation in, in pub, public culture at all, at all. Like, no, it was interesting academically and philosophically and especially mystically, but not relevant to popular understanding. No one, it wouldn't make sense to anyone. Now, I think even to the layman, there are plenty of sentences in it that will ring abundantly true. Do you think I'm, I'm wrong? And please don't pull punches. Well, I mean, it's definitely... I'm asking for a real review. strong on the theory. Like it's very, you know, heavy and you do have to have the background, uh, you know, to go when you're talking yeah. about ontology, hermeneutics, you know, semiology, there's a lot of terms that are, that carry a lot of weight. And so I think um, in terms of an academic piece, like it functions very well. Um, I think if you wanted to get this to like everyday you know, dude who didn't go through grad school reading theory, then, you know, that's a different approach. But I actually think that I'll probably spend the rest of my life explaining that book to people in different <laughs> pieces here and there. Yeah, well, yeah. I think one of the things that as I was reading it, I felt that your experience, your practical experience with mystic and magic practices was informing you know what you're writing so when you were that's interesting because none of my none of the four professors who read it knew any of that so yeah. it's really really weird for you as with your literary and philosophical background to know that and then see it from that perspective you're one of the 
few people in the world that could actually see it that, that way. Because when you said you were doubting yourself about it being, you know, right, I was thinking the thing is like you'd already done this work, like the work had been done right uh, internally, ceremonial, you know, magically. Yeah. And basically, this is mapping it on a surface that is academic and that looks at, you know, the the text not only in in philosophy but also in you know mysticism and spirituality that weave those together into a conversation that i think is for me is really important like Thank if you. i were thinking let's teach a class on you know mysticism and magic like this is <laughs> this is the process this is like a, a handbook in some ways please please let's turn it into a handbook into a into a you you can write a write an afterward for the second edition and and we'll both make money when uh, when all the universities pick it up. All right, boom. No, it, but but actually, I think no. I, I'm 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 being so. I, let me pull 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 out of my tailspin of self deprecation. Um, it, that it that's really cool to think that. Yeah, I think it could be. You know, there's universities still using today. Uh, Evelyn Underhill, a Golden Dawn initiate and first female theologian to be allowed to educate clergy in the. Church of England ever in 1911 she wrote mysticism it's still being used in some uh, university classrooms today as a textbook and and that's because not many people write in the field of mystical theology especially yeah. in dialogue there's very little work in dialogue with uh, you know post 60s post 70s thought you like what I did there um, except for like say Moshe Adele and and some other thinkers like that some of the avant-garde of, 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 of theorists so yeah, the idea that, that it could be used in a in a in a class on on that those in in those studies is really is really cool. And that, that would be a dream, of course, you know. But you know, we'll see. Yeah, no, I mean, send it to any professors you think might not think uh, it's nuts. It's not nuts, though. You're, like you said, it's it's written stylistically appropriately. Yeah, you can't have, argue with the style, eh? Yeah, I've got people who um. Who already I have in mind. Uh, I've been talking mysticism with some colleagues and uh, stuff like that. So I'm going to pass it along. There's a beautiful, it's a beautiful tradition of mysticism from uh, Nietzsche all the way through Zizek. Um, it's not what you'd expect it to be, but it's there. And, and if there's one thing I can say, like I started uh, researching and writing this uh, when I was 20, um, 21 in grad school after challenging my BA and what it was was I, I became a, an adept of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in 19 in 2000 1999 2000 2000 when I was 19 when I was 19 it took me six years to put that into words and these are the words so yeah that's what that is really and I mean, uh it's an awesome tool and I mean it was clear to me what was going on it yeah with throughout the text and one of the things that really highlighted it for me that i really really enjoyed and i don't know why we hadn't talked about it before is you have uh the moment in there with the quotes and everything showing that a philosopher is a magician that they're the same right <laughs> but i don't say it like that do i no i mean it's it's there if you're if you're looking at it and that was, was really powerful for me um to think that Right, philosophy is allowing you to look at something from another perspective, change the shape of reality, right, or the approach to reality or engagement with the real or the symbolic or the imaginary, right? I mean, philosophy has to engage all of those. And if you're doing philosophy, 
you're also doing magic or if you're doing magic, you're doing some form of philosophy um, in some sense. And I thought that was really cool to go like, okay, I mean, Plato and all these dudes basically are trying to perform some form of, of magic um, down, the, down the line. Yeah, sometimes it's just a very, uh, you know, endemic and, and integrated into the process itself. And, and what I tried to do was show, show it and not tell it, right? I was trying to show it and not yeah. tell it. And I guess that's why they call me a stylist. Uh, but, you know, I do think I, I, I also tried to make the, tried to make it aesthetically well-written, you know, yeah. and I, I, I hope I achieved that. I don't know. I'd be curious as a literature professor your thoughts on that. And if you certainly, if you have a cohesive sentence or two that you want to uh, give me to add to a few other PhDs who are giving me sentences for the back of the hardcover version, which I'm putting out, you're very welcome. Um, because yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know if I can write anything better than that in my lifetime. Um, I think maybe the only thing I might do better than that is some poems or songs. <laughs> Well, I mean, or maybe initiatory systems. I might. Who knows? We'll see. But like multiple people have said the same thing to you, um, but it's like turn this into the the esoteric handbook version of this, right? Like, um, you know, because this this functions at an academic level and at a you know philosophical intellectual level, um, but we we want it to function at you know these other levels and you've got all this knowledge to bring and share so i think we need a a layman's version as that's how i would put it yeah well that's uh, what i think you know, I, the rest of the rest of my life is an expression of what i think there and and i think the systems that the spiritual systems that we have in the world express the idea that I'm exploring, because I'm all I'm doing there in that book is exploring a reality already expressed in these systems, and uh, and and trying to grapple with it in in logical terms. Um, really, hopefully, it'll just inspire a few uh, other people in in the field of mystical theology, yeah, and yeah. hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, of course. Pick it up. Get this book. <laughs> yeah, folks. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. And and uh, damn, yeah, what a, what a good time. And uh, uh, cheers, brother. Oh, yeah. Um, Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Captain, my captain. Professor, my professor. Uh, I, I wish I could audit one of your courses sometime. Or now we'll hang out. We'll hang out. We'll make it to a to a thing. I'll be uh, I'll be visiting the States eventually again uh soon i don't know what i'm going to do with my uh i don't know if, what i mean if i if i will ever go back to do a phd but i'm just not convinced that it's uh the best idea you know yeah i don't yeah these days it's hard to say right yeah hard to say like uh, a lot of my friends who are in their doctorates or finished their doctorates in the last five ten years they they've suggested publishing a phd but it's like yeah i've sort of already done what i've gonna what i'm gonna do and and like my underhill dissertation i can just put that out as a book when i if i ever get my research back from my stolen library um or i can write new stuff right there's a lot of new things to explore and right i think stephen skinner and a lot of the esotericism academics have really opened up a lot of fields and uh 
I'm, I'm on, I've got contracts for a couple of pub, uh, translations of German and Hebrew manuscripts. So that could be, I might just stay with linguistic translation, uh, do a refresher intensive in Greek and Aramaic and, you know, you can just translate till you die, right? Yeah. No, well, <laughs> really what I'd say at the end of the day, academically, um, I think if you're able to do what you want to do, share the knowledge that you want to share um, without needing to be in the academic system, then like you're probably doing a better job than people in the academic system at actually getting knowledge to people. Uh, yeah. Well, like my, my buddy T who taught that demonology and rhetoric course at Un Florida University, right? Like if you could do that today, teach just as interesting courses and universities are scrambling for crazy course titles and subjects to attract students, right? Like acad academia could still be done. You could teach that course online and it's no different than a 200 person classroom, but you could have a thousand people paying you a dollar each every day for your lecture. And you could do it in your pink bathrobe, just like Derrida and except speak, just sit at your computer, speak for a few hours every morning thousand students in the world if, if you're a good if you're actually really an interesting teacher you'll probably have a thousand people want to learn from you and then if they you know give you a buck a day there's a thousand bucks a day there's money to be made in academia independently in my opinion because you but, but you got to teach what people want to learn and yeah. teach it well but but of course a, a lecture how different is it in a large classroom lecture versus zoom I mean, my teaching pedagogy that my instruction was very not lecture centric. Okay. So More modern style. Work is trying to have students working together, they them doing the conversations, bringing up ideas, and then kind of like big group conversations. So, it's uh. Yeah, that's ideal though. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's great when it works it doesn't always work sometimes lecturing needs to be done but it's just uh you know online hasn't been my favorite i like the rapport with the students in the classroom it's but great it's great in terms of democratic access to knowledge the internet is invaluable and important and, and of course better than me being in one place in one city accessible to you know x number of students or any you know academic in, in that sense yeah well so, it's cool to see the pioneers who are doing youtube things get and get patreon and make a make a few grand from doing that and yeah, like that's very cool like uh, dr sledge mentioned uh yeah if he if he could make enough just doing that talking about esotericism he'd rather do that than do survey philosophy courses yeah <laughs> which you know i'd love to do a few survey courses in my life it would be like it's a sort of like a masochistic fantasy i have to like be that guy at a community college teaching survey courses and trying to make them really good and really get people interested just for a few years you know three <laughs> five ten or twenty uh because teaching that stuff actually is really fun it's yeah. really really fun and uh, it obviously would suck if people aren't interested, but if you're a good teacher, people will be interested. Um, I, that's been my experience. Um, yeah. Uh, not everyone's a good teacher. That's a sad fact, right? Um, a lot of, yeah. yeah, anyway. But yeah, so anyway, I'm optimistic about the future of education, honestly. Um, I really am because, you know, there's a lot of censorship going on these days, but 
You know? Yeah, I mean, things move, things change, processes happen. I mean, we're in the, I think we're in a lot of movement and a lot of transition and a lot of change, and it's going to be painful until we, uh, we get everything back together. <laughs> exactly. Just balance it all. Yeah. All right. Brother, this has been amazing. Shall hey. we sign off? Shall we, shall we call it? All right. Yeah, um, thank you so much. I'm really grateful to get to talk with you and to, to get a chance to, to get to know you. And um, yeah, likewise. I'll, be, I'll be in touch. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk soon. And uh, I'll see you on the gram. Yeah, check out this fellow's Instagram, folks. Where can they find you on Instagram? Oh, shoot. What is my Instagram? Like at, I think it's at SS Cannon. SS Cannon. SS Cannon. Yeah. Dr. Sam Samuel Cannon, professor. Thank you very much for your time. Hey, no problem. It's been a very serious, effete conversation. And next time we will uh, take turns reciting Ezra Pound. <laughs> All right. Sounds excellent. Continue with the jouissance or the joy. The jouissance, oui, yeah, merci beaucoup. All right. Vaya con Dios, vaya con queso. Hey, gracias. See ya. Cheers, brother. Thanks. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk